Put that coffee down. You're listening to the Director's Club podcast. You know this. You double-clicked it. You put it in your ears. You know this. Uh, today we're going to be talking about David Mamet. You already know this. You saw it on the website. You saw it on your iPod. Um, it's fun to do David Mamet speak. It is, I say, it's fun to do David Mamet speak, but it is not always fun to listen to. It gets very irritating. So I promise we're only going to be doing the Mamet speak. I said we're only going to be doing the Mamet speak in the intro. David um, Mamet? In the ma- intro. David Mamet. That's what I said. Okay. Said it once. David Mamet. Let's introduce mm-hmm. ourselves. I'm Patrick Rapole. And I'm Jim Lazikowski. And with us we have a uh, recurring Recurring guest, returning guest, uh, Brendan Leonard. Hello. Yes. Welcome back, Brendan. Happy to have you back. Happy to be here. Awesome. You're back. back. I'm back. Back yeah. in black. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, so we're going to be talking about David Mamet. We're going to be uh, discussing his first film, uh, House of Games, and uh, his 2004 film, Spartan. But uh, first... Um, I suppose we should get into what we watched this week. Yes. What did we watch? 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 What do we watch? What do we watch? What do we watch this week? Brendan, tell us what you watched. Well, I've been a little busy around here, uh, so I didn't watch too much. But last Labor Day weekend, uh, I was here cleaning the apartment, doing some things, and I decided to get caught up on HBO's Game of Thrones. Mm. It was something Mm. that I'd seen the first probably three episodes of. Uh, really liked it. Then, as so often happens with these HBO shows, um, you get caught, you get behind on them, and then it feels like you can't find the time to get caught up. Right. Uh, and it had gone off demand, but it was back on demand, uh, and it was in HD. So I just sat down, and over the course of probably a day and a half, I went through all ten episodes, and I really uh, enjoyed it. Yeah. I think it's a pretty pretty astonishing series. Um, I think it's in a lot of combines, in a lot of ways, kind of the greatness of HBO past and some of the things that's more enjoyable about HBO present in terms of how they move towards high production values and camp and inserting more humor into their shows and building it around a cliffhanger, but mm. also having... Um, the political dynamics and kind of maneuvering and characterizations and long monologues um, that reveal character that were was notable of stuff like The Wire and The Sopranos and Deadwood and things like that. Right. Um, and it's definitely something that I'd be interested to hear your take on, Patrick, at some point, because I know you tend to uh, – you're not a big fantasy guy. That's and a- this is one yeah. – this, this is something that's definitely – it's fantasy based and it's got elements of like magic and it's a it's a kingdom that's not earth but or it's a world that's not earth but it really roots it in a reality of, of characterization and kind of sweep that that gives it you know not necessarily it kind of brushes away the kind of tr- traditional ideas of fantasy well yeah, i was actually going to ask you uh, sort of 
because I, I watched the first episode and mm-hmm. uh, I mean I didn't you can't really say these days um, that you give a really a show a good chance uh, just watching one episode mm-hmm. uh, so I it didn't really it didn't really hook me but at the same time I had I had the problem that I actually I had with Boardwalk Empire mm-hmm. um, that it, it I think it's just like too many white people dressing alike. Like it's hard mm-hmm. for me to tell people apart at times, and hard for me to uh, like if one character is in the background of one part, it's hard for me to remember who it is. And then all the names are names. I'm not really, you know, there. It's hard for me to remember fantasy proper mm-hmm. nouns. Yeah. Uh, so well, maybe watching it all in a row. No, I, and also, also, I think more to the point, watching it on DVD or something with subtitles. Right. Uh, yeah. Because again, this. But uh, I was going to ask you, what I, what are your like? Do you uh, generally like this sort of, not necessarily you know fantasy, but sort of sword and sandals, uh, sort of medieval kind of stuff? I mean, I I was I would say if you had to put a gun to my head, I'd say probably not. Um, I like my epics kind of Western and you know kind of 20th century type epics. Yeah. Um, I am not a big kind of sword and sandals guy. It kind of has to depend on the movie and also um because i really feel there's something enhancing uh those films are really enhanced by seeing them in the theater you kind of have to wait around for your opportunities uh to see them like i saw gone with the wind last Mm -hmm. year for the first time and i made sure to see it on the big screen and that was definitely something that was enhanced uh by a by a big screen where you can't get up and and pause and things like that that's why Um, i'm 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 waiting for lawrence of arabia to uh, yeah um, so, I, I own no, it, but totally I haven't seen sense. it because I'm waiting for it to hit a big screen. So, yeah. But I mean, just to, to address your earlier point, I mean, having the subtitles on, which I actually did this time around, I found was really helpful. Um, and the it it very much is a pretty much a a white own a white <laughs> cast. Uh, you know, you've kind of got some vaguely uh, Middle Eastern or Native American characters uh, or looking characters with the kind of Conan the Barbarian type tribe subplot um, which is actually some of the most entertaining and and interesting stuff on the show Um, but it very much is okay you have to remember this you know um, this happened when and but it's very entertaining in that the way they find ways to kind of develop backstory again if they were they reveal backstory through character uh and there are just some pretty amazing performances and once uh in gillen tommy carsetti from the wire shows up things kind of get moving and he's one of the reasons to to keep watching just because he's so slimy and so delightfully so um and so but he and peter dinklage are probably the two uh standout performances but i will say i was surprised by i started the show kind of liking one or two characters and at the end i had completely different uh opinions of who my favorite characters were so interesting i think good shows uh do that i remember especially this season uh breaking bad i remember always thinking oh uh, i remember the first season of breaking bad i was always kind of disappointed with the hank character i'm like oh boy here comes the Sort he's, of, he's really coming to his own. Boorish, mm-hmm. loudmouth, who's, oh, you know, it, it's sort of, and I, I was not, I'm never looking forward to him being in the story because he seems so one note, and then they flesh mm-hmm. that character out so well. Definitely. Um, and I mean, the, 
not to take up too much time talking about Game of Thrones, but the one other thing that again I think you might be interested in, Patrick, because I and it might it comes back to what we're talking about later is that the show has some really uh, strong female characters uh, and its mm. portrayal of kind of women in this world is particularly interesting and they're not just kind of waiting at home like Liv Tyler in uh, Lord of the Rings waiting for their men to go off to battle. The men go off to battle, but um, the women kind of have their own ways to make them them interesting. And uh, yeah. Sean Bean's wife in particular is a real... Uh, is again one of my favorite characters on the show and her approach to to things. I that's that that that, that definitely will interest uh that that definitely piques my interest more. Um I do have HBO on demand so I'll probably uh see it or I'll um maybe when the li- maybe when it hits DVD the li- uh the library I'll get it so I'll be able to watch it uh with subtitles. But mm-hmm. um yeah, I'm my looking one- forward to seeing that show. I I I've seen the pilot and it it didn't grab me right off the bat, and I've heard that you know it's kind of a slow burn, at least for like the first couple of episodes. Like you're just getting to know the characters and setting things up, which is you know normal for the most part. And mm-hmm. I'm uh, I'm excited to to invest some time in just watching the ten episodes all in a row. I I, I feel like you know if even if it doesn't hook me right away, there'll be something that piques my interest. It's just again this 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 genre or this type of setting isn't something I normally gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have one more question about it. And again, bringing it back to Boardwalk Empire, the other sort yeah, of hit, that's another show that didn't grab me. Uh, hit uh, HBO show from the last, I guess, season. Um, I'm never too sure on how TV seasons are divided up. But anyway, uh, what, one thing that always made me sort of laugh about that uh, show was the sex was just so gratuitous, <laughs> where it was just like you could tell it's like, oh, we need Paz De La Horta to show her tits, you know, so right. we'll just have her in the background walking around naked or whatever. Um, and I've heard a lot about, you know, the sex in this. Um, does it feel, I don't know if you even saw, saw Boardwalk Empire as gratuitous? I, I didn't have a chance to get caught up on Boardwalk Empire. I was hoping to because it's also on demand, um, but I just didn't have a chance to you know, um, it kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier and that HBO has kind of had this second renaissance even before Boardwalk Empire uh, by, you know, True Blood was in a lot of ways the show that put them back on the map. Yeah. After Six Feet Under and Deadwood and uh, The Wire and The Sopranos all left, there was uh, kind of a, a period in there where nothing was sticking and true blood which they built on having lots of sex lots of blood and you know these cliffhangers that end the episode that was kind of became their brand and so with boardwalk empire and with this they've definitely found uh at least with game of thrones found ways to incorporate the elements of that brand um you know if you had to ask me i would say that you know the sex didn't feel particularly gratuitous but i did go online and i saw some of the uh, feedback about certain episodes and certain scenes and the scenes themselves were were very very uh, there's one scene in particular with uh, Aiden Gillen that's very very graphic and I was surprised uh, that it was on HBO at all Um, but I think that it reveals uh, his character in a way and that it's going on as he's delivering this long monologue um, that you know, enhance that doesn't enhance, but definitely adds to his per- our perception of the character right. and his realization yeah. of the place in the world. So that scene in particular is a the pretty much the most graphic representation of what his character and what 
one of the themes of the series, which is those that want to move above their station and those that are aware of their place in the world and how to best play the Game of Thrones according to that place um, as well. Cool. So. Cool. Yeah, I'll, ch- I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, I, I keep hearing enough great things about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's also nice that uh, it, since it's based off a book series, you know that they have some sort of um, some sort of plan, and that they have enough time to, you know, um, fix some things that you know maybe the book series does wrong, or to, you know, to smooth well, them out. I, I went back, and I mean, because I've tried, I tried the book series or the first book a couple of times before the series started, and I watched the series, and I went back to um, reading the. I went back and I tried reading the books, and I got probably about. 150 pages into it and the first episode covers like the first 100 pages so that kind of gives hmm. you an idea of the framework that yeah. they're working with I wonder yeah. if this would have worked for something like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings well, Harry, I mean I, 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 I don't setup, know um, yeah. but I mean it's just, I've least, always heard those complaints from people like oh they cut this out and they cut that out but if you put it into a, like a TV miniseries form Right. Put well, it's interesting like because um, the book uses a, a third-person uh, kind of locked position in that you're with the characters and you're being revealed information as it's being revealed to the specific character you're following at that time. Mm-hmm. So the book creates these scenes, or the, the show creates these scenes which aren't in the book and enhance your kind of perception of the characters. But it's almost like how you have the deleted scenes on a DVD, almost like how people said, oh, if you read the Harry Potter books, it makes them so much better. And I wouldn't say that with this case, I'm finding the book to be better than the show i would say it's maybe about as good as the show uh so far that's good but it does add you know certain elements to characters that you found unsympathetic you kind of get a little bit more sympathy for them because it's their perspective and characters that you found sympathetic uh there are moments where you're just like wow the character does something that kind of changes your perception of them um in a way so i mean the book is uh I mean, it's all right. I'm not a big fantasy guy, but it's entertaining enough. So, right, cool. Um, and uh, Jim, you saw a sort of hotly disputed movie. Yeah, it's been very divisive, and uh, I think for the most part, a lot of podcasts have that I've listened to who have reviewed it have been more on the positive side than the negative um, towards Kevin Smith's movie Red State, which is now available uh, video on demand. And um, he's not even paying us for that. No. <laughs> it's very disappointing. No, but um, I, I I walked into this with an open mind. Despite I don't I think maybe the last Kevin Smith movie I, I've actually liked was Dogma, but I have problems with it. And the only Kevin Smith movie I really really love is Chasing Amy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very interested, and the thing is, I can say. Like the one major positive thing I can say about Kevin Smith, he's an excellent conversationalist. He's a great public speaker. He's a great storyteller. He's great at talking about, you know, things behind the scenes that have happened to him or the encounters that he's had, you know, with other celebrities and stuff. He's a really good storyteller. He's not a good filmmaker. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that, you know, I was hoping, okay, he wants to change things up. He kind of wanted to go back to his roots and have a whole guerrilla style approach to filmmaking again. And get you know guys like Michael Parks on board, and 
uh, Melissa Leo, John Goodman. And I was like, okay, and you know, it'd be was, funny if it'd be funny if he went back to his roots and then didn't move the camera at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does. He does a lot in this movie, and he marketed it as a horror movie, and it's not. It's it's not. I mean, maybe like there are elements like that can be considered scary because you know they're that Fred Phelps kind of character. It does exist in real life, and that's a scary mm-hmm. thought. Um, but you know, it doesn't it doesn't really affect you on a psychological level. But that's kind of his intent, and he just sort of fails at it. But it's an interesting movie for him because it's a three act structure. Act one is essentially a Kevin Smith movie with horny guys wanting to have sex and go go looking for it on the internet. And then Act Two is what happens um, when they are set up through, like, you know, a Craigslist ad or something, and then they get involved in, um, you know, this religious extremist preacher played by Michael Parks, and his sort of, uh, you know, long tirade. His sermon is really, really good, and it's it belongs. It almost belongs in another movie because it just it's jarring, yet it's it's really good dialogue. It's really good to hear. You know, it's something that wouldn't be out of place in a Tarantino movie. Just like, let's let this guy go off and be amazing for ten minutes or whatever, and it doesn't doesn't disrupt at all. Act three, on the other hand, is the intervention section of the movie involving the law enforcement, and it becomes a siege movie. It becomes a hostage siege movie with John Goodman uh, trying to get in and stuff. Um, and that's where it really kind of fails because it's does it's not his strength to really mesh all these things together in a cohesive way. Um, to me, it sort of turns into like a Coen Brothers movie mm-hmm. because he really wants to like it has these messages about you know like like Tommy Lee Jones's character No Country for Old Men, and John Goodman has these moments where he talks about evil in the world and and he becomes really preachy in a way that's not very engaging. Like, he tries to find connections how we perceive religion and the government and trying to say, okay, there's no bad guys here. There's just these impulsively careless guys who want to take action, and even if it means undermining other people or, you know, doing these things that affect other people's lives. And that message is really muddled in how he presents everything. It's it's more or less like... It's definitely too talky. It's a Kevin Smith movie, even though, you know, there are moments where I'm like, holy shit, he's doing these really amazing, like, chase scenes that are, you know, or something like that wouldn't be out of place and hostile. How are, how are the chase scenes shot? I am Shaky. interested. Shaky. Okay, Shaky so... Cam. All right. Um, almost like... Almost like Crank. Oh, really? Yeah, like just the really sort of jarring, shaky camera point of view of the guy's face it's as he's of, running away. Is it Does it sort of do the thing that... Crank does where it sort of it's like, uh, or even like uh, that um, uh, Tony Scott will do where it's yeah. sort of under cranked cameras and stuff and yeah okay. yeah totally and there there's moments where I'm like shit yeah he really st- he really stepped things up cinematically mm-hmm. unfortunately his storytelling ability isn't hasn't improved I like like I said going from these three acts they don't gel and by the end it feels really lazy. Um, and it's like again, I don't want to give too much away, but something happens that it's so much like a Coen Brothers movie in how it it plays out through dialogue rather than action. And Kevin Smith's strength is 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 um, you know dialogue for sure, but he's so bad at like letting things happen. He has to tell you everything. He, he's not good at showing you anything. He's more good at like I have to 
I have to, you know, say what I need to say, and if it's coming out of the mouths of the characters, that's what how it has to be, rather than focusing on action. Yeah. You know, and Goodman's good. He's good at being the central moral figure, and Michael Parks is excellent. You know, he's he's subtle, he's creepy, he's also very charming in how he, you know, tries to get people on his side and stuff. Like, you, you buy into his character the whole way through. It's just kind of a sloppy film. It really is. And it, I feel like his heart and mind was in the right place. Like, he, he really feels passionately about what he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. But it's not a, an engaging experience to watch. Like, I became more aware of the things the choices he was making rather than being like immersed in the story like I thought huh that was a weird choice why did he decide to do that like when I become so aware of a director's choices it takes me out of the movie well mm-hmm. and, now, and now that was actually the one thing I, I really did want to ask because you you listen to a lot of podcasts and you listen to I don't know if you still listen to uh, the Smodcast I listen to a lot of his other podcasts but you've listened to um, and the one thing I was going to ask is it almost felt like a cynical kind of movie. Like it felt like rather than make a movie that he actually cares about, he wants to like, it felt just from outside perspective, like, like he was trying to prove something. And, and so, he's picking the easiest target on the planet. Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Which, yeah, you know, any religious extremism. And, well, not even that, but within the, the, you could do a movie about religious extremism in, in so many ways that would be more interesting than going after the, the Fred Phelps family, which I feel mm-hmm. at this point, you know, has become almost like a punchline, and they've kind of become a parody of them themselves. Sure. Like when they're protesting Comic Con, that's kind of the, you know, the joke there. And there's a documentary I can't remember what it's called. It's on Netflix, but it follows the part um, the Phelps family and has him speaking and has interviews with his kids and seeing these like seven year olds say the horrible things that he does. As I would imagine, more frightening than anything in the kevin smith movie i mean so sorry i didn't mean to interrupt oh no not at all but uh yeah yeah and i mean so that was my question just i mean you have a better sense of sort of just because you've listened listened to smodcast and stuff during he, while he was making it stuff do you think it's something that he really cared about or do you does it feel more like I th- a? I think it was initiated this idea was initiated by his friend um i think his name is malcolm i'm not sure the last name i want to say it's malcolm ingram but i'm not sure um he shot a documentary called Small Town Gay Bar in which right. there's a section where he interviewed Fred Phelps and when Kevin Smith saw this that's that was kind of what drove him to to make this movie and I was kind of hoping for something a little bit more cohesive in how it's like I was really shocked at where it went with the third act because I thought staying with Michael Parks and the family was so interesting because like first act okay that's kind of what I expected to happen Second act, this is really good. I can sort of invest in this. And then the third act, it really takes you out of that realm. It takes you out of that world. And he wants to make all this commentary through the um, law enforcement. Oh, they're just as corrupt as religion. That you know, like that sort of thing is. It is definitely played out to death. Like I, I feel like he maybe he, he watched like Burn After Reading, No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, and this is kind of his take on those types of movies. <laughs> Um, and it's very messy. Uh, that, I mean, it's like I was shocked at how unengaging it became with the third act. As much as as good as John Goodman is, because he always is, he's very reliable in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, he sort of he literally comes on as uh, you know, like the Marge character from uh, from Fargo, and the way it's introduced, I'm like, wow, 
you I know you really love the Coen Brothers, <laughs> but there, there's just like so many things that that happened at a certain point in the movie that made me become more aware of like, well, this is kind of more of an homage, and I became less interested in what was happening in the movie to the characters. And to me, the whole movie didn't seem fully realized. It's very short, too. It's only 90 minutes long, which mm-hmm. isn't a bad thing, but I, I feel like he, he could have fleshed things out a lot better. But I will say this. I wouldn't give it away. But the very last line is awesome. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, okay. just, it's just how it's delivered and cut to credits, perfect. I can only imagine we'll do a Kevin Smith episode sometime. We will. And I, I'd love to talk about this movie more at length once more people have seen it, too, because... Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to do the spoiler edition of it right now, but uh, there once once things sort of turn around, I became really, really sort of agitated with it because now, it had strengths, and then it sort of wa- pushed them away after a while. Okay, now one final question: You said it begins sort of as a sort of typical uh, Kevin Smith sex comedy. A little bit. I now, mean, it's just more like the dialogue that you're right. used to hearing. Now, of everything I have read about this movie, and you know, people love writing about this movie. They sure uh, do. Yeah. Um, I've never read anything that even mentions the what I would think would be the main characters, um, which are the, the people who get caught up in this, the hostage, you know, people who get taken hostage. That's because by the second act, it really becomes... I mean, obviously, what happens to them is, a, is an important part of the second act, but all of a sudden we transition into the family or the, the okay. Michael Parks and everybody so in the So it literally church. switches point of view each yes. act. Yes. Yes, not just uh, not just tone and sort of genre, but right. point of view. And because Michael Parks is so fucking good, I was kind of disappointed when the attention veered away from him, and we were more fo- focused on John Goodman's plight and trying to deal with and trying to you know uh, intercept things. I, I was kind of kind of disappointed on how he wanted to get his message across in this movie. And I'm, at this point, I don't think it's anything new or special. I was just hoping, okay, it's going to be a shocking horror movie and he's going to do some crazy hostile type shit like Michael Parks was going to torture these kids or it's going to get really fucking intense. Yeah. No, it's mostly just chasing. <laughs> well, um, speaking of hostile, uh, I actually, the only mo- non-Mammoth movies I saw the past uh, couple weeks were um, Hot Rod, which is <laughs> Andy Samberg comedy, which is way funnier than you would expect, but I don't really have much to say about it. And uh, Airheads, which is the 1994 comedy with Brendan Fraser and Adam Sandler and Steve Buscemi. I've seen it. I and Joe Montana. I don't remember. To it. be fair, Joe Montana's in it as uh, as a cool DJ. Not a lot to I say. I know Emmy from Motorhead. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he has a little part. Uh, um, and that, so, not a lot to say about that either. So uh, I figured, um, figuring that we're recording this on the day before uh, the 10th anniversary of 9/11, we could talk about. <laughs> Well, I, I say I figured, like it's my idea. This was an idea Brendan brought up, but <laughs> yes. uh, it's a good one. We could talk about sort of how 9-11 uh, affected films and sort of films inspired by it and stuff like that. Um, I mean, the, the the one I always notice the most, just because I'm, I'm sort of a horror movie guy, is uh, especially post-Saw, I feel that sort of the torture porn genre, um, and most notably just the total lack of humor mm-hmm. uh, that that those kind of movies exhibited, you know, uh, film films like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake and the and the Saw movies, they just have no sense of humor and no, uh, you mm-hmm. know, they're they're not, and I, I think that's because it's I mean, uh, it's sort of how the same way that a lot of the horror in the seventies 
that was like sort of a reaction to Vietnam, you know, conscious or unconscious, suddenly mm-hmm. uh, the the real graphic horrors of mutilation and death um, were the not Abu, Abu were not some stuff. abstract supernatural thing that happens in you know Hammer castles, right? You know, it, it was something that was real. Uh, and I think, and I think the same way that you know Texas Chainsaw Massacre is often seen as a very real reaction to Vietnam, I, I feel like uh, movies like Saw and, of course, Hostel, which I think is easily the best one of that genre, mm-hmm. um, were a reaction to that. Uh, we're just now, I guess, leaving that sort of thing. I, horror has been kind of uh, not exactly sure. It's it's reaching that sort of early '90s uh, point where mm-hmm. we need some kind of scream or something to really. Uh, show the way. Yeah, we need we need something to revitalize the genre well, again. Here's here's my my kind of question about that, Patrick, because I'd yeah. be interested in hearing your thoughts on this. Uh, I just read this book, Shock Value, which is about kind of the horror of the '70s, and it makes the thesis that kind of many many people have made uh, that the films of you know the horror films of the '70s uh, were in reaction to Americans seeing or seeing the images of, of Vietnam um, and the, the Kennedy assassination and whatnot for the first time. Um, so that's what they were in reaction to. And the book also says that kind of the defining horror image of the 70s is Michael Myers because Michael Myers represents the idea of this almost Lovecraftian inexplainable evil you know it doesn't have a backstory it doesn't have an explanation it you know it doesn't crack wise it just kind of is there right um and that's what a lot of kind of things like rosemary's baby or the texas chainsaw massacre have that as a as a recurring theme and so i guess now that i've blowharted a bit my question would be to you is if these images of Vietnam and Oklahoma City and Columbine and 9-11 have so kind of become part of our culture or become part of our culture up to, you know, the early 21st century. What is the horror like hostile or the, the, the torture porn genre in reaction to? Is it, you know, just the fact that it's, you know, Americans doing this and, and you know, Abu Ghraib and things like that? Yeah. Or is it something else? Well, I think it's – I mean I think it, it is just this sort of feeling that uh, it, it's like – it's that we are under attack um, and it's this uh, it's this very sort of invasive and the, um, feeling and the same way you know, people lived in terror and were, were terrified every time they got on an airplane and stuff like that. It's this um, – it's this uh, – it, it, it was suddenly a lot more personal – then because i mean there had been you know the gulf war and Mm -hmm. there had been you know kosovo there had been military action but it it was never really personal um yeah it would never felt like the u.s was it always felt u.s was intervening as opposed to uh being attacked and right and i think that uh sort of feeling of dread and terror is in uh is where um, the the humor sort of got sucked in, and the fun uh, got sucked out. You know, sucked out, and uh, and what you're left with uh, is just the most visceral kind of um, you know horror imaginable. Uh, now, right. Hostel, of course, is a literal. Um, uh, I mean, Eli Roth. It's not. It wasn't inspired by nine uh, eleven. I don't believe. I think. 
I think it was actually Harry Knowles told Eli Roth that he found a website that purported it was like I think it was like a hoax or whatever, but it basically right. you could pay to kill someone. But what Eli Roth deals with in the movie is a lot of xenophobia, and um, I think it's also the first sort of uh, thing where, uh, like, well, no, I guess this was in Viet. This was in Vietnam too. But I think a lot of those movies sort of deal with not just an inherent mistrust of some other evil, but mm-hmm. there's also a mistrust of the American aspect as well. Right. Uh, um, the the uh, sort of the the frat boy almost Americans in Hostel are portrayed as jackasses who are sort of see Europe as a buffet and yeah. um, you know they're going through Amsterdam and they're just you know talking about women like they're cattle um, like not like they're human beings. There's a literal line where uh, they're just start talking about how one woman in the red light district like in a window is like oh my god she's a pig no she's a cow. Um, and then, of course, that gets all switched uh, when they become literal cattle. They're right. someone's mm-hmm. entertainment to be consumed. And uh, so there's a lot of this sort of inherent mistrust of uh, – uh, and there's there's that. There's the idea that people weren't really fond of America's response to – because they didn't just go to Afghanistan. They went to Iraq. They went to – you know, um, people didn't trust George W. Bush. So there's that right. as well. Um, and a lot of it seemed like a reaction to the fact that we're so oversaturated with s- images that we weren't years ago, maybe, with how the media is inundating us to some degree. Like yeah, some, Just perfect. some of the shocking images of, you know, Abu Ghraib and, uh, like, just, you know, when you see CNN and now we're, we're, we get instantaneous updates on every little thing that happens, uh, a lot of these contemporary horror movies seem like not necessarily uh, you know like a response to it but just maybe a way to deal with you know the shock of reality and like you know using horror films as a way to you know deal with it but i also think they were literal uh, specific references to the horror films of the 70s because this sure. is also a generation that grew up with vhs you know yeah. watching these movies on home video so they're not just influenced they're also like I think that's actually we talked about the problems we have with horror movies now is that um, it felt like you know people like John Carpenter they made they told stories and they right. loved they loved great cinema mm-hmm. and it feels like a lot of horror directors now just love horror movies mm-hmm. um, and they're not so yeah. interested in stories self, with real characters yeah on. yeah um, and even when it's not self aware it's sort of let's just have all the best bits. And then let's forget all the rest, not realizing that you can't have a pizza without the crust, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it was also specifically looking back, not just at the current world state, but looking back at the horror films of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, because on, in the 70s, they didn't have that, really. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm sort of off-put by just the, the, the torture porn genre and... A lot of it does seem like let's try and go for the shock value, you know, like the, the, the not that human centipede would fall under that, but it's more of just the idea of like we 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 just want to because everybody's so desensitized. I bet now. I bet human centipede will be looked back as the very last torture porn movie. You think because yeah. that's that's because it, it it took it and it made it camp. It took yeah. the one thing that torture porn wasn't and it made it that it made it fun. You know, right. I can't. I don't think you can go back. And now the human centipede two is supposed to be a commentary on the human centipede. Well, <laughs> like just this yeah, horrible, yeah, maybe, 
idea. I, and I and I do. I, I still haven't response. seen Human Centipede actually. <laughs> right. But uh, I do like that. Like uh, Toby Hope Hooper did with Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two. Mm-hmm. That movie is what people thought the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre was. So that's way over the top, violent and silly and crazy and gross and yeah. Um, and I, I'd be fun to see see if I guess Tom Six is the name of the director of Human Centipede. If you can do that, um, we'll see. Now, uh, Brendan. Other than horror, what are some other ways you think 9-11 uh, as affected movies or some other movies you want to talk about that are specifically affected by it? Well, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of specific movies per se. I mean, um, I've not been able to sit through United 93 <laughs> um, and I saw World Trade Center one afternoon while I was sick and delirious and I remember thinking it, it was pretty awful except for uh, Michael Shannon. Um, but I'm... Yes, and I just want to say as kind of like a caveat, it's still something that I haven't kind of fully come to to terms with uh, in terms of my own reaction to it. Now, did you, you did you live in New York at the time? I did not. I lived in Ohio. I was a senior in high school at the time. Okay. But um, it's been interesting because I moved. I was here. I was in New York for uh, the first anniversary, and in the you know decades since. You know, both my I've met friends and family who have who were at two of the three locations of the attacks, mm. and it's really hard for me to kind of you know buy into this. On September 11th, we were all attacked. Um, that you know, I think people who weren't there, there's almost a trying of kind of co-opting of it. Um, so it's really hard for me mm. to kind of say, oh, I feel this or I feel that. Um, because of that, because I'm still trying to process that, and I also I go to school three blocks from you know where One World Trade is going up, uh, so that's kind of like become really present in my life over the last month or so. Uh, that being said, I keep coming back to this again to come back to to Vietnam, which was kind of the polarizing or the the generational event. Of folks that got us into, you know, some of the adventures overseas after September 11th and that, you know, if you look at the films that were being made during the Vietnam War, um, you had a lot of films that were in reaction to what was going on, but you didn't really have kind of the great Vietnam War films like The Deer Hunter or Apocalypse Now or Coming Home until after things had pretty much uh, died, things had pretty much wound up over there and you didn't really start to see those until you had the people that were coming of age during that time uh making films so Mm. i guess my my thought is that while you know there are certainly films out there that uh are pretty astonishing in terms of documentaries and things like that uh that it's really kind of the 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 great kind of post-September 11th film has yet to be made because it's going to possibly be made by a filmmaker who is just now starting out or has not yet put together their feelings on the event. Um, yeah. So, and especially I think for, you know, our generation, and we're all writers and filmmakers here, uh, we're a generation that kind of came of age, as I said, with the idea that you could go to school and get shot or someone could blow up a building at least or you know you could die in an earthquake that 24-hour news networks were have been pretty omnipresent for yeah you know certainly much of my life and so there is kind of that overwhelming sense that this could happen at any time and so i think 
that in relation to 911 um is is certainly something uh that's worth seeing on the horizon but i mean there's been a lot of pretty there's been a lot of wonderful work done um about the about the event from a documentary perspective uh so i guess the documentaries are really the thing that came out of in terms of films dealing directly with the event uh the documentaries are what will are what have kind of defined this decade and that gets into you know the films that kind of tangentially deal with it like um like you know dark knight and things like that yeah yeah i remember talked about that i remember there being a lot Mm -hmm. of stir that the marketing for dark knight prominently featured exploding buildings Mm -hmm. yeah and that's sort of being the first (laughs) people talk about uh, there was this horrible looking uh special on bio I saw commercials for where it was like about it was like entertainers congratulating themselves for getting America back to like it was it was mm-hmm. like well we just we just had to let everyone know that it was all right to laugh that it was all right to you know like mm-hmm. um and there's a lot of talk about like Gilbert Gottfried at the uh at the uh, Hugh Hefner roast w- yeah. like well that's the that's the other <laughs> thing I was going to mention is is that I think that scene and the discussion of that scene in in the aristocrats is a real uh kind of brilliant uh encapsulation of you know what the what what humor can do in response to a tragedy in both you know commenting on a tragedy and then um in reaction because you know the the um i'm just trying to think how to put this you know humor uh is a way for people to deal myself included uh in response to to grief um and it's something where you know you don't know how to react but to laugh because if you weren't laughing you'd be you'd be crying or you'd be unable to deal with the the process of it you know and this Mm -hmm. is going to be a real stretch but i remember you know laughing at the the number of, of distasteful yet funny michael jackson jokes that came out in the wake of his death um as a response for people who would kind of you know, we're dealing with reaction to this other, you know, cult, pivot, cult, pivotal cultural moment. So, not to compare no, what happened so. on 9 right. to Michael no, Jackson's death. I would just, say, no. I would say probably my first big, I think the first, in my, my mind, the first big post, like, this first kind of comedy that really encapsulated what it felt like to live in a post-9-11 world mm-hmm. um, was Borat. I remember, I mean... That is a movie that, like, I remember watching it again and, like, wondering why I thought it was so funny because I was dying. And I was in a I was in a theater that wasn't just packed. There were people standing. It was, there was standing mm-hmm. room. And we were just, like, crying. It, like, I don't know if you ever seen a movie that was so f- funny that, like, you felt like you couldn't laugh hard enough because you couldn't get your air. Like, mm-hmm. Like I felt like that movie was a real release of all of the not necessarily the specific event, but sort of what the war in Iraq and the war on terror had sort of turned America into. I think that was the <laughs> right. first movie that really uh, let out a lot of that. Um, I'll, I'll tell one last story, and then I'll, um, Jim can talk because I know we don't <laughs> want to spend too much more time on this. So, yeah. um, but in reaction to kind of that, I just flashed on. I saw Twenty Fifth Hour close to the uh oh, the yeah. first anniversary uh in a mm-hmm. theater in new york at a preview screening and i just i remember 
the kind of pivotal fuck you monologue that that movie kind of centers around and it's building and it's building and the audience is kind of like laughing and then they're like um they're surprised at the places that the edward norton character is going to and you know each one it's kind of a bigger laugh and a bigger laugh and there's this anticipation where you know is he going to go after you know who we think he's going to go after i.e god and then he does and it's just i remember the reaction from the theater being so you know almost overwhelming and that it was this moment where i think a lot of people were it kind of were, were glad that somebody said it and it's just you know uh jim it's just one of those moments in a theater that i'll never forget Yeah, jim saw that at a critic screen this is my favorite jim stories well it's it's just crazy to think i mean i was definitely going to bring that up because it's definitely one of the most memorable movie going experiences of my life because um, I had seen it with a bunch of critics who had all their pens out and they were writing in the dark and they were ma- making notes and everything and um, that moment the mirror mo- moment of 25th hour I I applauded I was laughing most of the critics weren't emotive they, they, they didn't respond in the same way that I did other than turning around and giving me looks like <laughs> come on man what the hell I'm like how can you not be I mean luckily actually our last guest who was uh, on the Christopher Nolan show Eric Childress was sitting next to me and he was at least laughing and in, in, like we felt really connected in that moment to the response of seeing something like that because I thought it was really audacious and brave and beautiful for Spike Lee to just have this moment of, because we all went through some sort of, you know, not, we all had this feeling like we wanted to blame something. We all wanted to find mm-hmm. a scapegoat of some kind during that moment because we had no other way to, how to, how to process the, the grief and the shock of everything that was happening around us. And we, you know, we've had moments where like, man, fuck that guy and fuck that guy. But we never look at the mirror and say, you know what, the, the, these people, you know, the, it's part of us. This is all a part of us. We have to realize that we're living in a time where it should be more, life should be more of a transaction and not something that we're so focused on within ourselves. We need to communicate with other people and realize that our differences actually bring us together. And 25th Hour really sort of summarizes a lot going on Mm -hmm. in in, in the midst of like a really great story, too. It's a really, uh, I haven't read the book and I've always wanted to. Um, so I, I mean that, that's one of my favorite movies. Ever. I have a feeling that's going to be one of those movies, uh, like Easy Rider, almost where in like thirty years kids are going to look back and be like, I don't see why all of these people are shitting their pants yeah. over it. <laughs> but nobody did at the time it came out, and that's the thing that surprised the hell out of me. I, mean, I, thought- I seem to remember it getting pretty. I mean, it didn't get. It did fairly well as a box office, I remember, but yeah. I remember there being a fair amount of you Critics, know this is Spike yeah. Lee's best movie or this is Lee's most mature work yet. Um, in response to that, you know, because of the three, you know, kind of major New York filmmakers, uh, you know, Scorsese, Allen, and Lee, Lee's the only one that's kind of dealt directly yeah. with that as a result. I mean, you can talk about gangs in New York and yada, 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 but um, it feels like know, a very Lee's the only one who's movie. kind of taken it yeah. uh, on, its, on, on its head and kind of wrestled with it, which is why, you know, I think he's... He's one of the greats. Yeah, oh, totally. definitely. And on the flip side of that, really quickly, the um, the comedic side of things. I remember the first huge laugh I had at something related to nine eleven was um, the Onion. I think the Onion dealt, oh, yeah. dealt with that that tragedy 
really, really brilliantly. Like they, mm-hmm. they didn't hold back. They just did what they usually do. They were brilliant satirists, and they had headlines like uh, "Americans observe 9/11 by trying not to masturbate," or <laughs> you know, like just just crazy headlines like they always do. But that issue in particular. I think people, you know, at bars or whatever who were, like, sort of mourning and, you know, reliving the, the, the imagery that we were seeing on TV, when they all picked up an onion and we all had this laugh together in unity, it felt really, really helpful. That um, was probably the first the first one for me as well. I mean, I remember uh, the one... Well, I remember the, 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 uh, the title of their series, which was Holy Fucking Shit, America <laughs> Attacked, which I think was a kind yeah. of a perfect encapsulation of how we all, you know, felt. And I also remember their their article, you know, Americans find no other way to describe the events other than being like in a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. No, but yeah, that's... That, the Onion does great work. Always. Seriously. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I... Yeah, they're, they're great. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I mean, obviously... The the the, uh, the you know topic what's weird too of is that United ninety three was just released on uh, Blu ray. Right. I, I own I own that movie, but for some reason I'm never in the mood to just pop on United ninety three. Don't know why. What do you want to watch tonight, honey? Yeah, United ninety three. Well, I know there was a French documentary that came out the wrong, around the same time too. I think it was just called nine eleven that I saw. That, that was, was great. Re- yeah, that was really something. I, I was really blown away by that. And there was that like. There was a mix of like short films at the time with like the guy who did Babel and yeah, uh, and Sean Penn and things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was really, really heavy. <laughs> but there, no, there's. It's, I mean, it's a big topic, and we obviously barely scratched the surface. I, I know. But it's it, like it, except, it was, except I will say this because I know you'll appreciate this, Patrick. Yeah. The name dropping of nine eleven in Love Actually oh. is like my most loathed part of that. Oh movie. my god! I mean, I I do and even it's in wonder like the if. First five minutes of the movie it's like really and i mean i gotta admire richard curtis because he's gone on to like use his powers as a filmmaker to like try and establish actual good and he's made kind of film he did that movie the girl in the cafe which is about you know establish you know why we should be preventing global poverty instead of Mm. global terror and things like that but that's just kind of like a perfect uh, encapsulation of how not to name drop 9-11. Yeah. Or, or in Robert Pattinson, that movie, Remember <laughs> yes, Me. Yes, so let's forget that even happened. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, they say never forget, but uh, let's let's forget that part. Let's, yes, Agreed. that one gets a pass. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, I think we're ready to talk about the uh, filmmaker of the episode, Mr. David Mamet. Hey, baby. You ready for David Mamet? Ready for a highly influential Chicago playwright? Yeah, I thought you were. Baby, I know you want my syncopated speech patterns. You need my syncopated speech patterns. What you know about cons, woman? Short cons? Long cons? I got a long con right here, as you can plainly see. Baby, what you know about that individual being betrayed by the world as soon as they step out of their designated station in life game? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, baby, you're ready. Let's get into it. 
Growing up here in Chicago, David Mamet first gained acclaim when he relocated for college and put on a few off-Broadway productions in the late 70s, such as Sexual Perversity in Chicago, which was later adapted into a rather shitty movie starring Rob Lowe and Demi Moore. After winning the Pulitzer Prize in 1984 for what I personally consider to be one of the greatest American plays ever written, Glengarry Glen Ross, David Mamet then solidified his credibility more than ever and decided to become a filmmaker rather than just a prolific playwright and screenwriter. Mamet believes that his films should follow you know, normal structural conventions instead of visually intriguing camera work, but he wants his stories to be shaped by logic and objectivity and wants his actors to let the dialogue do the work. Now, several of his stories involve con artists and deception, and showcasing the way we perceive reality isn't always accurate. And in this process, he sometimes employs twists, but they never feel gimmicky. Instead, the revelations are fully realized as characters take action in order to um, eradicate their, uh, their plight. And in 1987, Roger Ebert called Mamet's de- debut film as a director, House of Games, the best film of that year, and continues to cite it as Mamet's best work. David Mamet. He's got a feel for the way people talk and think and cheat and love and he's got the Pulitzer Prize to prove it now America's most exciting writer makes his directorial debut join him in the house of games slowly look over my left shoulder and tell me if you see him yes he's just crossing the street the players a sucker born every minute huh and two to take him a woman of one world you want to see how a true bad man plies his trade Yes. Seduced by the thrill of another. We're about to sting this guy. I'll do it with you, please. Discovering that danger is the ultimate high. What is life without adventure? A man who offers you his trust. You've got a tell. A tell? You're telling me the hand that has the coin. You want to know a tell? His confidence. You watch this guy and tell me, does he play with his gold ring? And takes you. Do you want to make love with me? For everything you've got. kind of wanted to... Um briefly bring up a particular line of dialogue that is mentioned in the next movie we'll be talking, but I think it applies to House of Games as well. And uh, it's in Spartan, and one of the characters at one point says, I fucked up. I tried to help. And the reply was simply, that's usually when people fuck up. And uh, House of Games, uh, you know, along with Homicide, which we'll definitely be bringing up, you know, it, it's sort of an inversion of, of particular film genres. In this case, House of Games is an in, sort of an inversion of the film noir. And um, I think it's beautifully set up in how uh, Dr. Margaret Ford becomes seduced into the world of the, of the con game. And I think that the parallel is sort of brought up very bluntly at the beginning when one of her patients says, You do nothing, you and your self-help book. It's a con game. And then he pulls out a gun, threatens suicide, and she promises to help him when he says that I owe $25,000 to the mob, and if I don't pay them by tonight, they're going to kill me. So from that point on, she uh, enters the world of uh, conning as, you know, led by Mike, played brilliantly by Joe Mantegna here. And once we, once we enter that first moment where she uh, decides to help him out, um, in, in the actual um, pool hall during a, a card game 
that's kind of where the film really takes off for me, where it really becomes something special because I love movies where you you learn the craft of the characters and see what makes them who they are. It, it adds, you know, layers to their identity. And then, of course, the protagonists can't help but be as seduced as we are. And that sort of becomes, you know, one of those things where, you know, as you follow this character, you, you kind of understand why she, uh, you know, becomes so easily seduced. It's interesting you, you open with a quote from a movie we're going to be discussed later. Because uh, I think when talking about Mammoth's work, uh, there's a quote that I, I always thought it was funny that Homicide um, had not only uh, has the same name as the show uh, Homicide, but it also takes place in Baltimore. Right. Um, I don't know if Homicide does the movie take place in Baltimore? The movie takes place in Baltimore. Hmm. He always mentions Chicago street names in the movie Homicide. Uh, it takes place in Baltimore, though. Okay. Um, but uh, I, because. Uh, the other, uh, the, one of the famous quotes from The Wire, another one David Simon's uh, shows that takes place in Baltimore, uh, that I think applies to pretty much all of Mammoth's work is, uh, that's what you get for giving a fuck when it's not your turn to give a fuck. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's and that. Um, I think uh, when you're talking about his movies, you're talking about largely it, it, people who uh, want to go outside their station, um, and they are punished by the world uh, yeah. for it. Uh, I, I and they go outside of it with good intentions. I think you know. Yes. Uh, yeah. Exactly. It's always always well intentioned, um, but um, the, the world won't accept that. It's very it's a very bleak view, um, but of course it's 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 not depressing in a way that you could say like Lars von Trier movies are <laughs> because it's it's always entertaining and I. I think one of Mammoth's best, biggest strengths is he was fully established as one of, like, he is not the most notable film director we've covered on the show, but he's definitely the most notable, influential figure in American art that we've uh, covered on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Like, what he did to American theater was drastic and huge, mm-hmm. and his reputation established was established before he made one movie. Um, right. I mean, the the closest parallel you could say Mamet has, or today, is someone like um, I'm going to screw this up. Michael McDonough, uh, the director of uh, In Bruges, who was a, a pretty. I know it's not a McDonough. Uh, I know it's McDonough, but not Michael. It may be. Anyway, the guy who wrote uh, and directed In Bruges um, has also been known as kind of a preeminent Irish playwright and is one of the kind of forerunners of re- re- revitalizing uh, the Irish theater scene uh, in the, the late 20th, early 20, 21st century. Hmm. Um, and, you know, you talk about like a brilliant debut from a first-time writer-filmmaker. I walked out of In Bruges thinking it was pretty much the best movie I'd seen by a first-time writer-director uh, since House of Games. Ooh, yeah, it's, and, Ma- it's Martin, by the way. Yeah, yeah, Martin, mm-hmm. and uh, so he's well, got a brother, I think, uh, with, who who's also a filmmaker. So, uh, I mean, I think I I have not I the two Mammoth movies I haven't seen are Oleana and Heist, but like he doesn't really have any bad movies because he always knows what he's doing, and that's because yeah. he has the luxury of waiting four years or five years in between movies because he doesn't have to make them. Right. Um, and uh, so he, rather than um, 
trying to you know assert assert his philosophy or re reinvent you know uh, cinema. He just has these really good tales um, with these great scripts and. Him, most of his directing, I think, is just done in. I, I mean, I, I know I think a lot of people sort of make the mistake, and I definitely think we would be included in those people who uh, we think what most directors do is right there on screen. But like a lot of what directors do is all about assembling people. Um, mm-hmm. And when Mamet cast this movie, uh, he had an opportunity to, to do a major studio with big uh, big name actors. Um, mm-hmm. But instead, decided right. he wanted to cast, you know, his friends and his wife, and well, uh, you, yeah, people he's worked. You heard with. the story about how Joe Mantegna got involved with with House of Games? Um, no. So I think it must be a feature on the DVD. But Joe Mantegna uh, was played the out. We'll call it the Al Pacino role in Glenn Gary Glenn Ross okay. yeah. in Chicago and in Broadway, and, and won a Tony for it. Um, and they were doing the movie, and Mamet was writing the script, and Mantegna was, I guess expecting um to to play this part on on screen and you know but when al pacino's interested in playing you know joe mantegna al pacino which one is the studio going to back right yeah so uh mantegna said that mamet came to him and he was like i've got uh you know i've got some bad news they want to go with al pacino and mantegna and tony story is like that I saw, and he said. But then Mamet said, "I've got two scripts, and I want to do them with you." And one was House of Games, and I think the other one was uh, Things Change. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's because Mamet's dialogue, which is you know probably one of his most recognizable features of of his work, um, it, mm-hmm. it, it fits in certain people's mouths so well, and I think. Because it's just so blunt and so matter of fact, but yet so rhythmic and so precise. Um, and I, I think Montaigne is one of those people who it just sounds natural coming out of, despite not mm-hmm. being natural at all. Um, you know, and Ricky Jay is another one of those people who's not, he, he, before this, he was not an actor. He's a magician, mm-hmm. a sleight of hand artist, and sort of a magic historian. But he is. Uh, and a con man as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and that's and he actually provided a lot of insight, um, and was for, also in the Prestige for the film, <laughs> which in a way you can think of as movie about con men. In right, a way. right. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, that's I think one of the more interesting things about House of Games and kind of Ricky Jay's affiliation with Mamet, because Mamet's directed Ricky Jay's one man shows on Broadway and things like that. Uh, is the the line between you know the magic and the con you know the magician is very much kind of saying hey come here let me show you something cool and there's the line in house of games that kind of i think sums up not just the film but a lot of mammoth's work is it's you know it's called a confidence game not because you give me your confidence but because i give you mine yeah yes um, exactly and because the the con artist lets you in he's able to kind of trick you and and, and make you see something that you don't see and that's how we get sucked into a lot of movies too, yeah. because yeah. we believe in you know the the character that we're, we're we're seeing, and you know he sells us his confidence. And but I'm just <laughs> but like just the like the way Ricky Jay delivers lines. Um, there's yeah. one line in particular where uh, right after the first poker scene, um, he's like, "Are you have you lost your motherfucking mind?" And he puts <laughs> like the hardest emphasis on the G in motherfucking. 
that I've ever heard, and it's like no one ever pronounces the G. It's always motherfucking, but motherfucking, and, yeah, and or the way he says, "Pay me what you owe." Yeah, yeah, just, <laughs> just very, yeah, like you said, the bluntness is really it fits in his mouth so well, and it's not the sort of thing that I, you know, I'm not saying Al Pacino couldn't do it. I mean, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, he can do it, but yeah, it's not the sort of thing that works for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. Mamet's key uh, success in this movie is the casting. Though I will say, um, I find Lindsay Krauss. I believe her. I believe it's kind of part of the point that her character is a little kind of flat and stoic. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I find her mostly unengaging in this movie. I would yeah. agree with that. I mean, I think that's the only thing that uh, it takes away a little bit from the movie, especially once things come into play and she <laughs> you'd figure she would have a more intense emotional response than she does at the end of this movie and I feel like her her stoicism gets in the way as opposed to being um, an appropriate mammotism if, the, if, if, if that's a word but I don't know like mm-hmm. I, I, I find him interesting in, in that he is more uh inclined to focus on things like syntax and linguistics and the space between speaking or the repetition of language and it doesn't matter if it's it's unnatural or or stilted it's like Mm -hmm. this weird integration of like speech thought idea and all coming at you all at once that i find really interesting because nobody nobody speaks like this (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, what's 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 interesting to me, um, and this is something that he said himself, um, is that a lot of his work is about, you know, or almost all of his work is about masculinity and mm-hmm. the failures of masculinity and the failures of what it means to, you know, be a man in the the twentieth century. Um, you know, the the gunfighter is gone, the swordsman is gone. Uh, these kind of elements of violence have been removed from our society and really all we have is is words and so what's interesting to me about mammoth's dialogue and mammoth the way mammoth writes is that he writes you know he writes words and the as a as as violence and he writes dialogue meant to inflict a violence like a broadsword and which is why i think you know, he gets these great kind of male actors to deliver his dialogue so well. Um, you know, in the the line that I'm I'm remembering that just you know like a punch is in Red Belt when Joe Mantegna is like, "Who gives away a watch given to you by the you know who's you know who's so fucking stupid that they give away a watch given to them by X character?" And it's just like, boom, right. Or I mean, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, uh, Ricky, yeah, Ricky Roma's about you know the failures of masculinity. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's as they they said on set, death of a fucking salesman. Right. Oh, well, I mean, and then I mean, I think one of the most brutal things in any movie ever is Ricky Roma's uh, sort of monologue towards Kevin Spacey after Kevin Spacey fucks up his sale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, where'd you learn your trade? What were you Who's child? Fucking child. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God, that's so great! Well, they always I mean, say. And then even you have, uh, and then you have this aria of Ricky Roma's, and then you also have, you know, the concisity of, you know, my daughter, fuck you, is just just as powerful and just as painful. Yeah. Well, I mean, they always say that you know, action speaks louder than words, but with Mammon, I feel like they're one and the same. You know, it's like he wants to convey through words how powerful an action can be 
and how devastating it can be to hear certain things at a certain moment. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you know, when, yeah, like in Glengarry Glen Ross, there's so many of those moments where just the F word, it's not used gratuitously. Like, that's the thing that I think a lot of people sort of harp on is like, you know, the, the language in the movie itself. But, hey, those that's how those guys talk when they're, that, when they're, they're under that kind of pressure. And it's something... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, it's okay. No, that's it. It's something that that, that I think Mamet is aware of himself. Yeah. Um, there's a his the acting school that he founded uh, with William H Macy is known as the, the Atlantic School of Acting, and um, at NYU there's kind of the the running joke of how many blank studios or how many blank students does it take to screw in a light bulb because you've got these studios based around various acting techniques like Strasberg and the Method and Adler and things like that, and. Mammoth's joke is uh, how many Atlantic students does it take to screw in a light bulb and then you just go, fuck the light bulb. So I think there's a lot of self-awareness <laughs> that that's kind yeah. of uh, his uh, his perception. And he also challenges the way we use grammar in general. It's like uh, right. the way we uh, or, or the way um, that first meeting between um, uh, Margaret and Mike in, in the pool hall is really, really, really great. Mm-hmm. It's like just, just using a phrase like aren't you a caution? <laughs> you know, it's like that's that's something that's not ever spoken or something you wouldn't consider saying, but it, it, it's so cool. <laughs> I mean, just or at the, w- the end when he says to her, you know, you're a bad pony, and I'm not going to bet on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, in, in that in the first meeting in the pool hall, when he's just like, uh, why don't I just take out a gun and blow you to a million parts, <laughs> <laughs> not pieces, parts. Yeah. Yeah, just like the choice of certain words that you'd never expect. Like, I think of heist as being not necessarily like Mammoth poking fun of his of his own, you know, sort of self awareness with how he uses dialogue. But there are such ridiculous lines in heist that feel so out of place in a way that I can only perceive as comedic. And I think that's the intent. And obviously in state and Maine, that is the intent. But even in Heist, when, like, Ricky Jay says something like, my motherfucker is so cool that when he goes to bed, sheep count him. <laughs> or there's everybody likes money. That's why they call it money. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what does that even mean? I love that line. That's one of my favorite <laughs> I know. lines. I love it, too. Um, no, but, like, within the story of House of Games, um, I'm, I'm really interested, too, in not just how things play out, but sort of the subtext that's there with... You know, obviously, love can be considered a con game, or her profession as a psychiatrist, because it involves selling somebody their trust, you know, and or or an idea, and that that's really interesting to me. How he sort of finds, definitely in Homicide and in, and in Spartan, he, he he doesn't spell out his philosophy through his characters, but through the actions um, as mm-hmm. things play out, and that's that's really refreshing to me. Where. Like I'm able to piece together my own, you know, ideas of the movie without it being told to me, like in something like Red State. Now, what I what mm-hmm. I what I really like about House of Games, and it's something I you know only could catch on the second viewing, um, is that when you're watching a con movie, what you're trying to figure out is all right, who's playing who and how, because you're you know that something is not what it appears, because you know what kind of movie it is, because they've talked about. You know, being con men, and they've talked about cons and stuff. Um, but at the same time, the plot of House of Games is pretty straightforward in terms of uh, con movies. 
the actual con going on is not necessarily what Joe Montana um, uh, does to her and, uh, you know, that the long con of letting her think that they were trying to con her. And then, like, the actual mm-hmm. con is it's, – it's, watching it again, I sort of realized that she was already there mentally and she just needed to be shown a direction – to be to enter that sort of world where mm-hmm. she will now just take whatever she wants she'll just take someone's lighter from a purse like it's like uh like the scene right after the first uh um therapy session um she's like decoding what the person says like she has no real interest in helping them right and then later she even admits to herself that she doesn't think she can help them she just likes it as a game she she's having fun poking holes in what these people are saying and uh at first you think oh she's being further and further seduced and then the part the moment where she says to joe let me in uh, after they have you know sex in the hotel um you think that's where she's gone over the line but really yeah. the moment she decides to enter that world um and agrees to pretend to be his girlfriend like she's already past that point uh, and that's sort of – it's her conning. I'm not sure if it's 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 something that Mammoth's doing to the audience where you're automatically sympathizing with her. Um, and then it's something she's doing to herself as well. No, that's – yeah, that's that's a good way to put it for sure. I think, uh, you know, at first when – I, when I first saw this movie, I was shocked by where it went. And I hadn't initially thought, oh, shit, this has been happening the moment that Billy, the, her patient, yeah. came in. Because they obviously like read her book, they planned this out for yeah, a long yeah, yeah. period of time, and to where that 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 scene, you know, the poker game that was constructed as part of the long con, and it took me a while to sort of piece all that together. And in the same way, um, like you said, she sort of needed this or was drawn to it, and this has sort of always existed in her this side, and you know, Joe Mantegna sort of chastises her for it at the end. And I, I've always, uh, yeah, the first time I, I found myself kind of disappointed uh, that the plot wasn't so wasn't so full of twists and turns, really. Um, uh, but and I also found myself kind of baffled at the ending, mm-hmm. uh, in which uh, she decides to just kill Joe Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a lot of like what you were saying, Brendan, about how the failure of masculinity, where mm-hmm. Joe Montana is this man who has it all figured out, but he can't argue with a gunshot. Right, right. He can't talk his way out of being shot. Like, no, mm-hmm. he, he he uses a mantra that they they they've used in the military, <laughs> which is "Thank you, sir. Can I have another?" Oh, yeah. You know, and that's 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 an interesting final line for a character to have. Like, oh, no redemption for this guy at all. But I kind of, mm-hmm. I I don't know. I, I I wasn't necessarily sure if it was justified or not, and particularly like the final moment feels weird to me for some reason like obviously that's who she is she's a person who's willing to just steal lighter impulsively now um but i don't know if it was necessary that sort of final moment i think it feels weird and clunky i think it i think it was mainly to serve as a contrast to um the first time she thinks she kills someone or gets someone killed she has tremendous guilt yeah um but now and, she doesn't. And now she knows that she literally pulled the trigger. I think it was to serve uh, yeah, as a yeah, contrast. Yeah. Um, and I really like the use of the Freudian slip in this movie. I think it it sort of builds really well. Yeah. 
to mm-hmm. where like you know she gives herself away at the end because of that tendency because um, that's that's almost like her tell yeah I, I do and yeah the the meshing of psychology and con men using the Freudian slip as a tell like that's that's really interesting yeah. to me um I think maybe if Lindsay Krauss was a better actor it would have it would have been easier to buy the first time around uh, this sort of the, uh, this sort of transformation that she would go to that place mm-hmm. um, but I, again I think her character is just too flat to really go on an emotional journey with her right um, but I don't think it's a huge problem uh, because I think that is written also into the character um, and she's surrounding herself with such amazing actors in this movie absolutely too. Oh, great yeah. JT Walsh oh god that guy's amazing I would love to have seen him perform some Mammoth live. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. he was in the original production of Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah. So Now, I know you had problems with the ending, uh, Brendan, or at least one point you did. I mean, I still think it's... I First of all, I think it's Mammoth's best film in a lot of ways, um, specifically because I also... I think it's the most uh, illustrative of his kind of directorial philosophy and his philosophy mm-hmm. as, as a screenwriter which I think is different than his um, philosophy as a uh, as a as a playwright um, but I think his idea of use absolutely what's necessary to tell the story cut it in such a way the cut is what you know if words are your your tool on the stage the cut and the edit is what um, is what's is what you're going to use in, uh, in 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 film and his book on directing film, which is interesting, but also illustrates just how much he learned from working with Sinu Ume on the verdict. Because if you read making movies and then you read on directing film, you'll kind of see where the two blur and where one influenced the other. Where Sinu Ume's philosophy is very much. You know, the director doesn't need to show off. He just needs to go in and needs to guide the film and, you know, almost be workmanlike. Whereas Mammoth's like, you know, it's director's job to tell the most efficient, effective story from point A to point B um, and relying on the cut to do that. So I think there's a lot of interesting editing in House of Games um, that that lays claim to that. Um, I unfortunately cannot bring any examples of mine. Um, well, I mean, other... I, I think there is a lot of hard cuts. There's not a lot of what right. you would think of as Hollywood sort of cuts where there's a sequence where there's one shot of someone extending their arms and then there's a close-up of the poker right. chips. Mm-hmm. Um, every cut is very deliberate. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. and I think that's true and that's something I didn't even really notice. So. I definitely think he has good control and confidence behind the camera. He doesn't need to be, you know showing off like oh I can do this with the camera and I can do that or well, I can but he doesn't need to be inventive he just he's so in service of dialogue and the story but at the same time it never feels like a play it never right, feels right. like too stagey mm-hmm. um, right which is why I think it works as his best kind of movie movie there are elements to some of his other things where especially if you look at his most two most recent films Spartan and Red Belt he's kind of gone to the extreme of what we see in House of Games where it's very sparse and it's almost all you know, uh, it, it's it's very much reliant on the uh, the the film as a as the piece as a as an edit 
or as a as a as a climax of editing as opposed to um, you know dialogue going back and forth. Although there's great dialogue in both those films. Right. Um, the other thing that I think sets House of Games apart is that it's got just some some gorgeous cinematography. The way he shoots the pool hall, the scene, my favorite scene in the movie, which is Joe Montaigne in silhouette playing with the with the coin. Um, after they, they they part for the first time, it's just it's a really gorgeous looking movie, in in many ways. It is, and unfortunately, yeah. uh, my library uh, the first time I saw it was on Netflix Instant, and it was actually cropped to full screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second time I saw it was on the MGM DVD, which is horrible looking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's even like I I don't know if it's cropped wrong, but it looks stretched. Like I. There was no nothing I could do to make it seem like it was the proper aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, um, it was released on Criterion though, which is I'm, what I imagine you have. One of the worth checking out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a phenomenal film. It really it's it's it feels like the template for for David Mamet's movies to come. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that you know for people who kind of know him as the guy who did Glengarry Glen Ross, I would hope that they would go back and check out, especially his two Criterion releases. Because I feel like House of Games psychologically has a lot of interesting things to say, like that moment where um, a patient asks her, do you think you're exempt from experience? And Mm -hmm. the fact that once she finally has some sort of life experience, you know, she realizes she's just as human, that there is no separation. Compulsive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And her book is, you know, about oh, I've dealt with all these obsessive compulsive people and their patients, but uh, she never really like examined the fact that that exists in her as well, and that mm-hmm. this whole experience brought that out in her. And it's, which, yeah, which is yeah. again more more pointed towards the fact that it's like an intellectual exercise. Like she's not actually experiencing things. Like mm-hmm. yeah, like the idea that she is a doctor who is being human and helping people is kind of a con in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which is I think sort of the nice thing about the sort of book ending. People asking her to autograph the book because the movie opens on, uh, and then the movie actually it opens the same way a lot of Mammoth's early movies open, where it starts off with a close up of something, and then it and then it pulls out. It's yeah, he doesn't allow himself <clears throat> a lot of flourishes with imagery and stuff, but I mean the opening and closing uh, shots he can he will uh, allow himself to do that, but it opens with someone running up to her and asking her to autograph the book uh, and yeah. that's your introduction to the character and you think that's nice we have a doctor who is helping people and you know uh, and then of course the ending it, it, the context is completely different right and I mean with the, with the ending um, and I'm not referring to the last scene but kind of her final confrontation of uh, with, with Joe Mantegna um, I should say that I've never really seen Mammoth's work as a, as a whole as misogynist although I've, I've read a decent bit about it and talk hmm. to uh, people, including my fiancé, who are far more uh, articulate about it than I am, especially when it comes to his stage work. Um, but the ending of House of Games where she's kind of mowing away Joe Mantegna and he's screaming, you know, these epithets at her, it's the first it's one of the few instances where I can kind of see the 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 complaints or the, the issues that people have with him. Um, and, you know, coming back to what you were saying earlier about how, you know, she was kind of in this from the beginning or she kind of wanted to be led, um, keeping that in mind, it does also kind of deal with one of the themes of, of his stage work 
which is that are that which is that you know women are inherently distrustful or are not to be trusted. Um, so as I said, my fiance has this great line where, uh, you know, where she says David Mamet managed to make a play about race where the entire the, the entire message was don't trust women. <laughs> um, but do you think we're supposed to be hmm. sympathizing with Joe Montagna at the end when he's yelling out those epithets? I I don't know if we are or if we're not. I'm still trying to put that together. I feel I like think it, that there's enough there's enough venom behind it that it gives the it it just it's it's just an odd kind of off putting moment and it's the one where I've been able to really look at Mamet as a director as opposed to a playwright and be like oh okay I can see why you know people have an issue with some of his I, work. I felt it was just sort of the ultimate expression of of his weakness at that point. Mm-hmm. Like that's yeah. all he could do. Everything else, right. very precise, very, uh, very sure doesn't have to do that. And then now he's complete, uh, you know, he, he has gone from, uh, what's the word? Uh, you know, gone from In control. Uh, yeah, he's, he's lost control and he's, uh, gone from, Oh, what is the, you just used it that your girlfriend is, your fiance is more, uh, well spoken on the matter. Articulate. Articulate. There we go. He's he's yeah. gone from he's being very super assured. articulate to the opposite of 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 articulate, which is just yeah. screaming whatever obscenities he can think of. I thought it was it was less that uh, it was less of David Mamet the writer saying those things than it was David the Mamet looking at him and going, "What a you know what a sad bastard." Right. Well, yeah. I mean that's definitely an interpretation. I mean, just that would be my kind of one issue. The other scene that kind of ties into that is when she's overhearing them um, kind of talking about her and uh, the the language that they're using there and they're kind of mocking of her. That definitely seemed, I, I want to say, slightly excessive yeah. uh, to me. So no, I got you. I, I, can, I can definitely see that point. I, I always wonder if it's an extension of the writer or, mm-hmm. I mean, or is he pre- thinking this is how the characters are? This is how this is how they would talk in the same way that Glenn Gary, right. Glenn Ross. That's how those characters talk. So obviously, th- these guys, you know, they they act mm-hmm. one way, but in reality, they're 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 misogynistic jerks who just want right. to manipulate people, including women. Well, um, I mean, Mamet. Ma- one of the things that's interesting about Mamet's work is to you know kind of come back to. The wires, the context, as much as anything matters, and the, sure. the the things that you do, you know, affect the the way you behave, whether you you know it or not. And uh, there's definitely the rumor of the scuttlebutt that the divorce settlement, which I actually I think it was Lindsey Krauss who's in House of Games, his their divorce settlement basically um, he gets no royalties from his early work, and they all go to to an ex-wife. Um, I, I think that looking at that and kind of his I would I would imagine his upset about that would tie into kind of a, a filtering through towards his his uh his perception of, of women as not to be trusted through his work. Hmm. That's just kind of theorizing, you know, we don't know for sure. Well that also makes me think of his movie Edmund in a different light <laughs> because that that movie had such a, an in, intense visceral response from the audience because I, I'm assuming he he wrote it after dealing with divorce because it starts off with a character deciding I mean, to leave his wife a bunch of times. So. Yeah, yeah, I, and I know that this the movie was came out like ten years after he wrote this play, but mm-hmm. it was the 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 audience I saw it with did not respond well to a moment 
involving racist uh, remarks given towards a character in the same way, actually, that uh, you mentioned with with the ending of House of Games, because uh, at one point William H. Macy's character and, and Edmund decides to beat the shit out of um, an African-American uh, um, vagrant bum and uh, decides to uh, say every expletive, every racist remark that you can think of in the book. And that, to me, felt wrong um, when, mm-hmm. I, when I had seen it. Like, I, I didn't respond well to it, but I just figure, well, he's psychotic. He, he right. has no um, sense of, you know, humanity at that point mm-hmm. in time. And I think the same goes for Joe Mantegna, too. It's like he's right. lost all hope, lost all humanity. What's he going to do? He wants to try and go out and exhibit his masculinity mm-hmm. <laughs> in his final moments, I guess. And um, I mean, we, we can talk a little bit more about this when we talk about Spartan and kind sure. of his political philosophy. But I do think that there's a fair amount of him as a, as provocateur where he's, he's oh, no saying yeah. stuff to get a reaction. Um, and I've compared this, you know, before, but he really is kind of, uh, in many ways, the the a very successful troll when he wants to be, where he's just like, I'm going to say A, B, and C, you know, like... Um, because he knows it will get a reaction. So absolutely, and yeah. uh, speak. Getting more into the political side of him, uh, it's a good transition into uh, his 2004 film Spartan. All right. Where's the girl? Sir, we believe she was abducted. That she was taken to a bordello here in Boston. She may have been delivered for sale and sent down the pipeline and overseas to get to her father. What do they do when they realize who they took? They kill her. Got two days before the press wakes up. I need a man, a man who can unquestionably follow orders. I am here to get the girl back, sir. And there is nothing I will not do. What's this? She signs all of her letters with it. She sees things cockeyed like Picasso. They took her. Who is they? I don't want to get in trouble. She's here. Where is she? You're going to leave your life, or you're going to leave the information in this room. There's a slave trade going on of American women. In 2004, David Mamet released Spartan. The title is a reference to both Val Kilmer's lone warrior character and the very nature of the film, which is a tight and minimalistic thriller. Sharpened to a fine point, Spartan boils down Mamet's pet themes to it their, and preoccupations to their most raw elements, creating one of his most compelling films. The film follows Kilmer's army ranger character, Scott, on his mission to save the president's daughter. And... I mean, that's pretty much all you can say. There's yeah, that's that's the extent of the plot. Uh, I well, mean, th- there is one more thing you have to say, and I have a question for you, Patrick. Yes. yes. Who took her? Who took the girl? <laughs> Who took her? Where's the girl? Where's the girl? Hold on, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't get any of that. Let me set my motherfucker to receive. <laughs> yes. Um, no, it, it feels like, and I love, love, love this movie. But there are times where it's like the entire first act, and really the entire movie can be summed up in. Who took her? Who took the girl? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, and and even though this is a very sparse, uh, you know, thriller with sort of political implications, this is still a lot of con games going on. Um, we have the uh, con game that uh, Kilmer plays on uh, a death row prisoner who's involved in the sex ring. They believe the uh, daughter was kidnapped yep. to be part of. Um, and then, of course, there is the con game that uh, they later, the uh, the Secret Service later plays when they uh, claim that she died in a boating accident, um, just because it would it would uh, you know it would ruin uh, 
her father's election chances if they knew the truth, which is that he was, you know, he was in Boston to fuck some girl, uh, and uh, and while the Secret Service was pulled from her, she got kidnapped to be a, a prostitute, international, mm-hmm. uh, international prostitute. That's a globe-trotting variety. <laughs> um, no, but this is a like a really uh, tight, yeah, and I. I mean, that's something about all of Mammoth's movies that really appeals to me is I don't like a lot of fat and, um, you know, he doesn't necessarily make short movies, but his movies always get to the point and always keep moving. Um, and this of course is probably the most relentless example of that. Uh, the forward motion is so much. In fact, I think, I believe the first time I saw it, I was so lost. Um, it does not, (laughs) it, it doesn't, it doesn't take its time to tell you what's going on. You have to catch up just as the characters are. Um, and they're using this, you know, sort of complex jargon. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but it's so exciting to watch. Uh, you know, that's just, just a simple fact of art. It's, it's exciting to watch people who are good at what they do, do it well. And the mammoth speak right. comes out so naturally out of Kilmer. Well, in this movie, and I I, what I was saying sort of at the beginning is that his, his, his sort of chief strength is that he can pick and choose the movies he does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's always making these movies about these people in which his dialogue will fit yeah. um, whether you know whether they're salesmen or whether it's uh, it's sort of the uh, the, gu- the guru nature of, of the trainer in, of you know Chiwetel Ejiofor and Red Belt and uh, mm-hmm. or uh, con men or you know I, I was surprised I, I didn't know how I was going to feel about the Winslow boy because I always thought his speech felt so modern um you know, it felt weird to have it for him to do a turn of the century family drama, but even those, you know, even that fits so well because those are people who who very speak very manneredly, and everything right. they say is said for a reason. Um, you know, and again, interrogation scenes uh, and an army, you know, and military uh, personnel. This is how they speak, and right. uh, it's able to come it, out of their mouths and not feel like a put-on. Uh, it feels natural most of the time. I mean, uh, some of the some of the dialogue. I mean, as much as I love, uh, um, don't teach him how to knife fight. Teach him to kill. That way, they meet some poor bastard who learned how to knife fight. They send their <laughs> soul to hell. Like that's yeah. <laughs> send his soul Man, to hell. I've seen this movie a dozen times, and I can't tell you what it means to set your motherfucker to receive. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> I, I mean, it's. I mean, I know it's a it's a military sort of you know radio kind of term, but it's just it's so good. And they sort of they certainly have their own lingo, and you know they're they're sort of in the military they just have their own language too. Absolutely, and that's I mean, and, and that's an, another reason why this is such a good fit for Mammoth. Yeah. Um, during this time I was watching it uh, sort of going on now to a sort of recent conversion to uh, almost a conservative pundit uh, like this feels like like 24 the mm-hmm. show feels like it could have been Spartan the series like oh, this yeah. like especially the first uh, act or the first two acts in which Val Kilmer is basically just torturing people <laughs> right <laughs> And everything's just like relentlessly paced and going forward and forward, and it's breathless. And we're at, running out of time, running out of time. Like it, it's very much. Um, I need to see his show, The Unit, after because I like. I'm such a huge fan of Spartan. Now that I've now heard was, good things now, about Brent, the show. Have you seen The Unit? I have not. I've okay. been meaning to, um, but my understanding is that it's very close 
tonally too too Spartan, and again, oh. it's very much um, yeah. That's what I keep hearing. Ma- it's it's very much about men doing uh, masculine things, and the the feedback that I've seen is that the stuff about the home front uh, with the with the wives at home is is less engaging than the stuff of the guys in, in the uh, field. Right, right, okay, but. So, but this and this does have a very conservative feel, where you know there's no real question in Mamet's mind that everything that Kilmer is doing is justified, mm-hmm. um, it- whether or not it's actually going to lead to her, you know, to to her being saved. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie never really stops to question. Uh, I mean, it even it even sort of makes a point when Kilmer tells this sort of cadet who has sort of sort of worshiping him to take out this eye to take out this guy's eye like it pauses on the cadet and the cadet's like what but <laughs> but Kilmer acts like I shouldn't have to ask you twice and, and in a way the movie is doing the same thing where uh, mm-hmm. it, it's almost uh, ridiculing the the cadet for questioning taking out this random person's eye who may or may not know <laughs> yeah he's treating every situation like you know react um, without without hesitation, Almost, like he's treating every situation like boot camp. You just gotta have instantaneous thought at all at all costs. I mean, he even he even says at one point, you know, it's all in the mind. That's where the battles are. And yeah. That sort of I, I like that sort of you know um, philosophy that he that he imparts in you know within within Kilmer's character. But it's all in service of the story as things move on and progress. I like the fact that you know. Obviously, he doesn't have all the answers, and his character is completely flawed, too, well, I think. Mm-hmm. What makes this a special movie and not just a tight, fun thriller is that the movie really becomes about his character yeah. and about a man who has been trained to only act as a tool and right. to not act as an independent agent. Um, and it's sort of, again, it's him sort of trying to assert he finally tries to assert himself outside of, uh, you know, his go- um, his domain, and mm-hmm. and the whole world is suddenly against him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it and Red Belt, you know, kind of coming back. Absolutely, to our friend, The Wire, both are share that common theme of how individuals that are react when the institution they have pledged so much to, you know, betrays them or turns out not to be what they expected. Exactly, yeah. and and um, so it it really does, despite the fact that the relentless momentum of the first act does eventually you know come to an end. Um, what we're left with is actually more intriguing. I feel um, mm-hmm. where it becomes a character piece about Val Kilmer, um, and it's sort of his struggle, and it's uh, and Val Kilmer. I think does a great job in sort of showing that journey without showing that journey you know mm-hmm. uh, never, there's never a moment where you are not where you are unsure as how he feels about something but he is completely unemotive um, right. yeah it's a very internal performance too I think and I think that's important because I, I there are definitely movies where I want to see you know emotive expression in a mammoth movie it's not necessary because I think it's all able to come through through words through dialogue through the actions of the characters as the story you know goes on and it, it's and when it gets to a certain point where you find out exactly you know the the the, the political conspiracy of sorts um, yeah you totally buy it you totally buy it and you totally buy his you know 
transformation of sorts. Like he wants mm-hmm. to do the right thing, but realizes he's caught up in a system that doesn't always want to do the right thing. And that's kind of like, you know, one can sort of perceive it as being like, you know, a cynical point of view, but at the same time, uh, people are corrupt. <laughs> and then it's in every single uh, mammoth world, we come across these individuals and there's nothing we can do. We, we sort of have to just adapt accordingly, and if, even if it means compromising our own values. And I think that sort of comes across in this movie very well. I would agree. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now, uh, as far as um, what we were discussing um, about sort of, uh, you know, uh, accusations of misogyny, one thing I think is interesting about this movie is uh, Allison Lohman, who plays the president's daughter. It's Kirsten Bell. Kristen Bell Kristen from Bell. Veronica Mars. Uh, Kristen Bell? I thought it was Allison. Yeah. Okay, yeah. looks just like Allison Lohman. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pre, kind of pre-fame Kristen yeah. Bell. Yeah, okay. Uh, and it's like she's not billed up front, and, and she's like barely in it, but uh, it, it's her. But and yeah, she's she not does being kind of look cute... like Allison Lohman. Yeah. All right, my mistake then. Uh, sorry. Um, but anyway, her character is not uh, not a helpless... Uh, you know, not a helpless little girl, but at the same time, kind of, kind of just a dick, and kind of just, uh, like she, she like throws herself at Val Kilmer, like she strips for him so she he'll give him her a cigarette. Like it's a very unusual character mm-hmm. um, choice, and I I'm honestly not exactly sure. Like what you said about that the one moment in House of Games that makes you sort of go, oh, yeah, maybe. Like, that's sort of the one moment for me mm-hmm. um, where it almost feels like uh, she'd be too traumatized to be all of that. Like, Right, but I mean, you mm-hmm. also... My my response to that would be is you also figured that some, some time has passed between, uh, you know, this girl being kidnapped and this girl being reported dead and so forth. So she's probably been... Uh, living under the condition she's been living in for such a time where she's adjusted to an extent or I don't want to say adjusted but she's become kind of so numb that she just this is the only way she knows how to respond well uh, well that's well that is that's that, I guess that's an interesting question how much time do you think elapses I didn't think it was all that much time um, uh, I guess I mean the biggest jump of time would be in between when she's reported dead and when his cadet finds him. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now, do you think it's... I, I thought it couldn't have been more than a week or two weeks. I would say it's probably... I mean, it seems to me that the jumps in time are a couple of months at least. So, okay. you know, yeah. because you have to figure that... Then this is just kind of pure speculation. The, woman, the girl is reported missing or reported dead... Uh, you go through, you know, the national outpouring of tragedy. You know, you do you do the the funerals. Um, you do the, you know, a month later. What's our reaction? Yeah, public and it's kind displays. Of, allowed of... to kind of slip out of the the, the public public eye. Um, that would be my, my representation. So I say, you know, maybe four months, half a year. But it was still and, and, mm-hmm. it was still on an it was still on the front page of a newspaper. Okay. That uh, Kilmer had um, when he's at the farm and when the cadet finds him. Um, okay. I can't remember the exact headline, so it is possible it was something like a month later how Nation's reacting. But right. I, um, but I feel that the real justification of her character is sort of just that she 
hasn't been raised by her family. Like she said, she says that line, I've been raised by wolves. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. like, uh, I understand, like the way I read it is that she's just this girl acting out and that's why she allowed herself to get, I mean, it's not like she was studying in her room to, you know, and then she got kidnapped by a sex ring. Uh, mm-hmm. this, yeah, this isn't taken. Yeah, yeah, this isn't <laughs> taken. She was she was sort of acting out in dangerous ways because you know she doesn't get any attention from her father, and she doesn't. Right. Uh, and she feels uh, you know somehow she's, ex- she's accepted what she's happened. both neglected and um overprotected. Uh, right, mm-hmm. and I mean you can you can see that I guess in in the real world with you know the the Bush daughters and their kind of. Uh, shenanigans uh, when when their father was in in the White House. So yeah, it's definitely you know when you grow up as the film implies in that kind of political dynasty, um, public eye, you do you know if you're there are individuals which can you know act out in in ways as established in the film. And that's and that's sort of. Uh, like it, it the, in the in the end, um, you know. Spoiler alert! It is a happy ending that he saves her. Um, mm-hmm. He not only saves her, but he actually survives. Which somehow I always forget. I right, I but... always <laughs> think he dies at the end of the movie, and then I yeah. watch it again, and, and I forget. that's because I think if he dies, it would actually be a a happier ending because <laughs> you know there's that there's that dialogue of the the guy watching the film or watching the broadcast and going and then looking at his watch and just go, you know gotta go home and the last line is Val Kimmer saying you know lucky man it's so he literally doesn't have a home anymore he has nowhere to go yeah um, he has this this set of skills oh yeah and he has this thing that he's been trained to do but he has no one to do it in service to so you know he's almost like to come back to Red Belt he's almost like a ronin in that way and that he's a samurai mm. without a master yeah no I didn't yeah. even think about it that way um, no, that's that's totally true, and I like also it's it, it implies that her getting home safely is in by no means a happy ending for her either. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like he's like you're tough, and you'll probably get over it, but no, you you are messed up, and <laughs> um, no, I don't even uh, consider that um, you know him being alive was actually worse. Because I yeah. mean, if, if 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 he died on on the airstrip, that means that you know he would have died in service to something. He would have you know fulfilled his duties as as a ranger and as this guy, you know. Right. So. No, that makes sense. Um, uh, yeah. So, but uh, I, I at the same time, I still think it was like an interesting choice mm-hmm. um, to have uh, to have Kristen Bell's character that way, um, as opposed to I mean, I guess the default. Uh, sort of thing would be just that she's catatonic from right. trauma. Taken. Um, yeah, it's almost like she has like a Stockholm syndrome of sorts. Like she's like sort of accepted her place, and it's just kind of a, a, a scary notion that you know you come to that certain point of like you know what, fuck it, I'd rather be here than at home. You know, mm-hmm. like that's. <laughs> I was I was definitely taken aback by that that um that twist as well because I, I mean you expect and that's the thing i always feel like with his movies there are certain things that you expect in a certain genre whether if it's a th- political thriller or a heist movie and he knows how to he knows how to play with your expectations in, in a lot of different ways and here it's definitely that's one of the one of the components here and and you sort of expect to uncover layers of a political conspiracy and you know you find mm-hmm. out about um her her father's 
not wanting to go look for her again and just like things like that are like wow okay people really just completely lose their humanity in place of you know in the fear of losing power mm-hmm. and that's you know well, and, it, and it gives her character so much more depth and yeah. it also gives them that scene um, where they're sort of both two people lost who thought they were one thing and now they who and now they're they're you know they're without a direction and yeah, purpose. Right. and even bit characters get these complex motivations like the uh, secret service woman uh, who oh yeah considers, that's one of the best scenes in the film yeah who considers her a daughter and mm. like her opening is where she's talking about she's like I, you just don't know how to console them. Um, and like she's really talking about herself, um, and that's such and that's such a sad line in, in retrospect. Once you realize her real attachment uh, to the, to the daughter, that that she's the one uh, you know who has to console the first lady. That she's the one mm-hmm. who you know she, no one will ever say sorry to her. You know. Yeah. Um, no, that's interesting too because almost so many characters that go through some, some sort of struggle in Mammoth's movies have like a complete breakdown or disintegration of identity. Yeah. And it's, that's, mm-hmm. they're that's, almost, they're almost like existential crises. Um, yeah. and, and again, this is not a movie that, is, that is, has long, you know, this is not a movie that goes on any kind of tangent, um, that mm-hmm. has flights of fancy of any kind. This is a relentlessly propulsive, you know, thriller. And it, yet it still is able to, do those complex things with characters i think i feel it's so underrated um in that regard and it, it's the best thing i can say about it is that it does its job and it does its job well it's you know yeah it, um, so. like we said about um you know last on the last episode about christopher nolan's movies too it's like it can work on a cerebral level but at the same time he presents a very straightforward story and you know, executes it in a completely uh, entertaining fashion as well. Like you, you don't need to. Obviously, the ideas are going to come across, and you're going to get something out of it intellectually. I think, but still, it's just a really good, tight thriller on top of it mm-hmm. as well. And that's something that you can give Mammoth a lot of credit for is that when he dives into a genre, whether it be you know a, a, a sports movie or. Um, a con man movie, like even if you you know you know what you know what to expect in these worlds, it's still like even something like Heist, which I think it's kind of an innocuous mammoth movie. It's mammoth light. There are th- performances or bits of dialogue that just make it worth your time, even if it's nothing you haven't seen before. And the same goes with the movie that he wrote called The Edge, which I think is an amazing movie where. It's a total Mammoth movie. It's a total examination of machismo. I'd like to think of it as if Mammoth wrote the Lost pilot. That's what the okay. edge. That's what the edge is like. And uh, um, it's one. It, the director didn't make any. I think he just made like one other really good movie. But Ricky J plays the smog monster. In that one, right? <laughs> he should have. Yeah. He should have. But what the weird thing is when I saw the edge, uh, one of the characters from Lost is involved in the plane crash. Let me guess. He says Walt. And that's it. <laughs> that's it. Well, it's the same guy. Yep. It's the same guy. It's Michael from Lost. He's also in The Edge. Right. <laughs> yeah. Where's my son? Who took my son? <laughs> Who took uh, yeah. him? Um, I think uh, I think now would be a good time to get into uh, some other Mammoth movies we might want to talk about. Yeah, right. definitely. Um, Jim, you want to start? Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about um, Homicide because 
that I'm it's it's tough. I'm I'm pretty at this moment in time. I'm positive that it's my favorite Mammoth movie. And, it is. Uh, it's definitely my favorite. Yeah. Uh, again, there's plenty to say about what happens to um, his character in that, in terms of like going through a loss of identity and the betrayal involved. Whether it's you know you can find parallels between the law enforcement again and what he has to sacrifice, um, and then even where towards the end, obviously spoiler alert with. Ving Rhames' character, his his own mother sells him out. That's a betrayal. The he gets involved with you know the members of his own religion and hoping to affirm some sort of identity so he can say I am this. But then he's betrayed by them. So and there's a lot of interesting nature nature versus nurture kind of elements in in, in here as well, where it's like he has to deal with how he wants to be a certain way, but things keep getting involved to where he has to compromise himself. Um, I just think it's a fucking great cop procedural movie, too, where, you know, it it's obviously it it led into ho- Homicide, the TV show, in some way, too, I think. I No, they they were unrelated. Oh, okay. I just feel... I feel like just... The, they came out the within nat- six months of each other. Oh, okay. Um, the book um, that the TV show is... No, no, the... the uh, I'm sorry... The uh, they can't the the movie Homicide and the book Homicide came out within six months of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so and the show was based off the book. Right. Um, well, it's definitely a very personal story for Mammoth. Yeah. Well, in examining his own, faith. it's my favorite movie of Mammoth because I feel it's certainly one of his most personal because you know faith is very important. His faith is very important to him. His Judaism is heritage. Um, yeah. His identity as a Jew is you know. He, we talked about all these movies are being, you know, quest for identity. I think that's, that is something, you know, if, if he had to identify himself as one thing, that's probably, uh, what I would he, agree. Yeah. So it's very personal in that way. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's shot by Roger Deakins. That's helps. It's really, yeah. really beautiful. I mean, to be fair, I haven't seen the criterion of house of games. So I, this, cause I, how? Because homicide is it also a criterion? I think I brought it over. Didn't um, I? Uh, the criterion of House of the Games? No, ho- homicide. Yes. You okay. Did. Okay. No, that's when I first saw it. Is when okay. you brought it over, and right. then I rented it again. But it's a beautiful movie. Um, it still has that very hard dialogue of House of Games, mm-hmm. um, whereas uh, it, where it it feels pointed enough um, that it doesn't quite sink into the reality, and I like that about that and about House of Games whereas something I feel like Spartan just because there's so much jargon and because you're dealing with characters that are so um, who operate in different worlds I feel like that dialogue sinks in a little more and feels more natural and it om- I almost like the unnatural feeling yeah um, like especially the, the car ride with William H. Macy and Joe Montaigne that's where it's that's like life's a bitch isn't that I believe I've said that yeah I said that like, <laughs> like it's very you know, not quite parody, but it's almost there. Um, so it's still got that. Um, I think all the performances are really great. Yeah, it I feels love, a lot like a Sydney Lumet I, movie. I mean, police procedurals are one of my favorite genre, and there's same, that. Same here. Um, something I didn't really notice, and you know, something I never really put two and two together. I think uh, Mammoth's preoccupation uh, with uh, sort of you want to talk about uh, ABC always be closing, or what is it ADIA? Um, yeah. On the other side, mm-hmm. 
like that almost I feel connects to sort of almost a Jewish thing where you know like the word Yahweh is made up of three Hebrew words <laughs> and um, in this you know in this movie Joe Montana finds uh, a, a word you know finds a uh, grofaz yeah grofaz there you yeah. go which is uh, something they called Hitler and it's made up of three German words put together um, yeah he's, he's trying to so desperately look for something that's not even there which is really like it, the ending of this movie is really devastating because and it's also strange uh, again harking back to the prestige our conversation last week or the last episode where the twist is basically revealed halfway through the movie but you don't want to believe it and in this movie if i'm not mistaken we are told who the killer is at some point midway through the movie and we yeah. want to believe just like Joe Montaigne's character no there's more to it than just that look at that there's anti-semitism going on there's this there's that there's all these layers um, and again we go back to he, he, he tries so hard to you know affirm his identity and do all these things that are hopefully going to help mm-hmm. in some way but it all winds up corrupt and he makes all the wrong choices as a result and that's and you know that leads into what happens in the final shootout where you know him choosing one uh, action over another leads to a consequence to where he loses his partner and I, I, the consequences in this movie feel really really devastating um, much like in, in Spartan and House of Games where and, there's an emotional investment and as someone you know and as someone I did I'm not I'm not Jewish but I did grow up in a you know strict Catholic household and as someone mm-hmm. who grew up with that very strict Religion and that sort of that idea of that being very important, right. and that idea. Uh, um, I'm always intrigued in sort of the coded, uh, you know, messages and sort of the the meanings and sort of the origins of beliefs and words and yeah. ideas, um, which I think is a lot of you know uh, Jewish scholarship is also about. Um, and of course, right. you know, David Mamet as someone who is preoccupied mainly with words. And their use—that's uh, something he's interested in. So I find that whole backstory, like when he's going to visit the uh, Jewish—is uh, it a university or a library or? Yeah, I think it's a library. But anyway, sure. he's mm-hmm. and there's those scholars. They're talking about you know, yeah, this sort of hidden history that no one talks about. I find that all that super intriguing and right. Um, so yeah, that's my favorite uh, Mammoth movie as well. I would agree. What are your thoughts, Brendan? <laughs> Uh, this has been a one. It's one that I saw a while ago. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have a chance to rewatch it, um, but I definitely think you guys bring up a lot of really interesting points and a lot of good things for uh, listeners and viewers to, to kind of chew over. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's great. And it's on Criterion, people. So Now, uh, yeah. Brendan, is there a movie you want to talk about? Um, I will talk briefly about uh, State and Maine, just because I think well, that's uh, good. you yeah. want the the fun, a, a fun mammoth movie and if you like your uh, your kind of inside baseball uh, Hollywood <laughs> movies this is one to check out I think it's very uh, I don't want to say mannered but there's definitely a kind of lack of realism uh, it's very farcical yeah yeah it's very farcical um, and it's just one where I it's nice to see Ricky J playing a normal person a father as opposed to you know a con man yeah. uh i really like david Paymer in it um and then i just it's uh it's got you know you talk about uh 
Man of the Movies having quotable dialogue. This has it in spades. Oh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, I, it was funny. Like, I, I thought it felt a little weird and, like, farcical for Mammoth. <laughs> and then there's the moment where the t- where the uh, the two sort of old country bumpkins are reading Variety and talking about, like, points on the gross. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that that would feel like that. That's, like, wackier Coen Brothers level. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a really f- uh, fun movie. Um, it's and what's sort of surprising about it is it's really, really like biting and like mm-hmm. it's it's really nasty towards Hollywood um, in a way that I think uh, you would not necessarily expect from a movie that's so lighthearted. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not well, the it's not the, the usual uh, it's not the usual. Oh, she's vain and people are vain and they're only worried about money. It's like no, they're all child molesters. Like <laughs> <laughs> Alec Baldwin's character. Yeah, he's 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 funny. But I mean, I, I, it's clearly pulled from from Mammoth's own experiences working in in Hollywood and in his book sure. Bambi versus Godzilla. And also, he's kind of a recurring figure in Art Linson's the producer of Fight Club and The Edge and a bunch of other movies. Uh, his two books about about Hollywood, and uh, there's a chapter in I think Linson's second book, what just happened, where it's literally him and Mammoth trying to one up each other with ridiculous "it's blank meets blank" pitches for meetings. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! And this was the first movie I was like, oh my god, is there not going to be like a con of any kind? And then uh, there's sort of a little bit. There I think, is at I think the, the end. Only movie, I think the only movie he's done where there's no real con is The Winslow Boy. Right. Um, yeah, it's very straightforward. To the point where it was almost distracting because I kept waiting for there to be a reveal where yeah. he was guilty the whole time and everyone knew. Mm-hmm. And, like, there was nothing like that. Nope. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, State and Maine is really – they used to play that on Comedy Central a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's a really cool movie. Yeah, I think both State and Maine and Heist are a lot of fun. They both came out a year back to back, and I just remember going, you know, not all Mammoth movies have to be deep and profound. And I, and I do wonder, <laughs> I do wonder if his infrequent like sort of output is sort of a reason why he's not better, why his movies are sometimes met to disappointment, like because mm-hmm. he makes these movies that aren't, you know. He, he doesn't make the kind of films that oh you can tell he spent four years working on this film it's just you know he gets around to making a film when he has a good idea and he wants to right sure but they're I off- mean I think I think he he tells the stories he wants to tell and I mean recently he's been doing a lot of stage work he's written a couple of plays that have been on Broadway and things like that so um, you know it kind of ebbs and flows if you look at his career he'll do things where he'll have a bunch of plays and then he'll do you know movies for a while so it's right it's mm-hmm. where he's in the 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 play version of, of his career yeah and uh, I and I think he is more playful and sort of having I don't think he I don't want to say he doesn't take movies seriously because he clearly mm-hmm. is a great artist and but um, I don't think he's necessarily trying to make masterpieces um, I don't think that's his goal, uh, and I th- and I think people are kind of disappointed. Like, oh, is this going to be the next Glengarry Glen Ross? No, it's mm-hmm. not. That's not what he's interested in. Um, but I I feel like he is underrated because maybe because of that. Like, if he did these kind of movies, but he did them every two years, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like people would just be like, oh, cool, the new Mammoth movie's out, and they're ex- instead of being like, oh, Mammoth has a new movie coming out. Right. Man, it hasn't been a new movie since Spartan, and then it comes out, and it's like. No, it was pretty good, and then mm-hmm. 
people are reacting to that excitement rather than reacting to. That's what probably the what happened is. with me with Red Belt. That's and that's yeah, what I want to talk about Red Belt. Thing. I think yeah. Red Belt is much better than people give it credit for. Um, I think it's really intriguing the way it turns the sports movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's. It, I mean, you want you know, Rocky is one of the most copied movies of all time, and but we're now we're at the formula where we open with a character who has nothing to prove. Um, mm-hmm. And the main struggle is not to win the fight or to you know to prove that he's great. The main struggle is to not prove that he's great. The main struggle is to stay true to himself and to only fight when he needs to fight for the right reasons. Right. Um, and actually, I, when I was watching it, I thought about the last episode we did on Peter Weir. We had a uh, we had a uh, listener email us about movies that were, like that we thought were spiritual. Mm-hmm. And I think Red Belt is a very spiritual movie. Right. It, there's no religion in it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's very much about having very strong beliefs and living in a world that is telling you that's not the way to do things mm-hmm. and sticking with it. Yeah, sticking to your guns, like sort of upholding that uh, samurai warrior right. kind of mentality because I, I think i think in mammoth's world there are no victories other than moral victories right right um, no that's totally I mean, true it's interesting coming back to kind of why he doesn't make movies very often is i think he kind of makes movies about whatever interests him at the time yes and yeah, yeah because with i know with red belt he's actually a black belt in the martial art that they jiu-jitsu they, or Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, yeah. which was uh, introduced to him by his co by co star and friend Ed O'Neill, who is also a black belt. Um, the, that I wow. want to see. I want to see Al Bundy kick ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think he kind of goes through things where he's like, oh, I'll make a movie about this, or I'm interested in this. And so, um, you know, I think, and I also think that the stage provides him a little bit more leverage to be. Uh, playful slash controversial with uh with his topics whereas with you know a movie would probably be a little bit harder to get funding about you know say a satire of the 2004 presidential election right right or a movie about or a a uh you know a, a legal drama centering around a, a a rape trial so right i but i am glad that he is uh like i'm glad that there is an artist like it's pretty much just him and Woody Allen who get to make the movies that they want to make mm-hmm. um, because yeah, the kind of, because the kind of like outside well, of Hollywood Steven, if, if Steven Soderbergh can go off and do second unit on the Hunger Games I would say he's pretty much also at a point where yeah he can do oh yeah 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 but um but even uh, there was a recent there was actually a really good interview with St- uh, Steven Soderbergh and, and Ain't It Cool News um, and he was talking about how he had to like he had to come up with a completely different take on Contagion because he knew okay. that the kind of movie he originally wanted to make, um, he could never get the budget for it. Right. I think the same thing happened with him in Moneyball. And I think he was supposed to he was supposed to make Moneyball, right. but he couldn't. Right, and he got fired off of it. Right. I th- but what I'm saying is, I think the reason they're able to do it is not just because they're clout; it's because the kind of movies they want to make are not mm-hmm. big budget; they're smaller character pieces. And I like right. that you know mammoth never went the route of oh i really want to see if i can make the great western you know <laughs> like but he i mean he's he's written he, you know he wrote the untouchables that's true he was a he's a script i don't know if he is anymore but he was a 
a script doctor for a while. John Sales is another guy that that does his own thing. You know, these guys yeah. Yeah. they go and they they find their way to to make their money, and you know they use that money for stuff that interests them. So you know, for every uh, script doctor on Apollo thirteen, you get you know mate one or something. Right. So. Um. Now, uh, real real quick before we close out, uh, I remember you once, me and you disagreeing once on the ending of Red Belt. You said that was like one of his more depressing endings, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's one of his happiest endings. Well, I mean, I, I would say it's the, I would say you know if you look at it from a a intellectual level, yeah, it, it's happy um, in that you know he's 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 proven his honor and. It's been recognized by, you know, mm-hmm. those in the field, not those who are trying to take this sport and, you know, commercialize it, which is, I think, kind of his reaction. Well, honestly, to, those trying to take this art and make it a sport, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and which is something I think he obviously feels very strongly about if you look at kind of how, you know, MMA has become very widely commercialized um, even since the release of Red Belt and I think if you were releasing Red Belt now um, it would be it would have done much better because it's kind of having MMA seems to be having its moment yeah. in a way that it wasn't you know four or five years ago and I think that uh, that he it, it's intellectually and emotionally yeah I would say it's a happy ending I just feel bad for the guy because, you know, what does he have except his honor? And yeah, the message is that's all that that matters. I just personally feel bad for the guy because he doesn't have a wife. You know, his name may yeah. be the, the guys in the MMA or the guys that matter in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu recognize him as an honorable name. But, you know, his name's pretty much been dragged through the mud and it's just, you know, well, it's kind of so. No, no, I, I understand. I definitely agree with you. I mean, his his own wife betrays him. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, like, That's definitely and, and obviously talking element. about these things in a binary, happy, sad ending right. is, you know, ridiculous. Um, but uh, I do feel uh, I do feel that the main thrust of throughout the movie is mm-hmm. is he going to stay true? And then he is. So right. But, but yeah, no, that's totally. No, true. I totally, I totally. Uh, I'm not see your quite side. the biggest fan of the very final shot. Oh, I think, really? I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I guess in my own mind, I'm thinking of how to make the movie better. How would I make the ending better? Maybe him just walking away, knowing you know that he's upheld his honor and everything. I, I'm other trying than, to like, figure being out. Approached by the professor. I'm and, trying to figure <laughs> out. Like the one thing I don't like about the movie is I can't figure out how the professor saw him beating yeah. some guy walking and then suddenly knew the context of that fight. Right. That's what I mean. That I, is. It that's... felt kind of false, but it's not. It's nothing that ruined the movie at all. It's just like literally. It's one. It's logically false, but it's emotionally true. So <laughs> it's like well, I, yeah. I can. I make that. I make make that leap despite the fact that it really I doesn't do make a lot of sense and what can you say about a movie that tim allen's pretty good in <laughs> i was just about to bring up i wish tim allen would work with mammoth again or he would take yeah. it would do more interesting things like this because it's uh you know it's it, it shades to him that i think you know we we could do well to see more of kind yeah. of like uh with brian cranston and breaking bad absolutely oh, yeah, definitely that's and totally i mean true. and i mean tim i mean it's it, it's of course it's 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 almost uh it's almost a parody at this point that but tim allen really is fits the mammoth type of a very manly right. you know i mean he obviously he 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 uh his comedy exists to serve as a parody of that but it's mm-hmm. 
but at the same time, like he is so comfortable in that movie. Yeah. Um, in a way you wouldn't necessarily expect him to be comfortable. I, I think David Mamet should adapt, you know, a, an episode of Home Improvement. Yeah. I think that'd be <clears throat> awesome. Feature. I mean, yeah. I, we could get. Who would you think? Uh, Ricky Jay as uh, Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> Go to lunch. Who'd play? <laughs> <laughs> Will you go to lunch? <laughs> uh, William H Macy as Al. <laughs> I was gonna go with Ed O'Neill as Al, but that works too. Well, that works. By the way, better. Ed O'Neill doing jujitsu. I'd like to make a list of people you would not expect to be martial artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was one of the first, from what I understand, he was one of the first guys in LA to be doing. Brazilian jiu-jitsu before it took off as, as a thing. Yeah, I, I would also put in there uh, Gary Shandling, who is a uh, pretty prominent, not a prominent, player? but no, boxer. Oh, boxer. Right, yeah, he right. boxes. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I always think that's interesting and funny. Um, yeah, I think that about wraps it up, though. I want to look up YouTube videos of Ed O'Neill and see if we can find something. I don't know if there <laughs> are any. Just real quick before we wrap up, I yeah, wanted to yeah. let people know that Mammoth's a pretty prolific writer of essays and things like that. And he's got a book, uh, True and False, which is about acting and his approach to acting. Yeah. But it's also really uh, meaningful for those that are considering the arts as a career. And he's got some really interesting things to say about, you know, the coming back to say something like about the nobility of choosing a, a career where there is uncertainty and there isn't, uh, you know, there, you know, you don't know where your next check may be coming from in service of, of something, you know, greater than yourself. And also, even if that doesn't sound like the sort of thing you're, you're interested in, like I read his book on acting and I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't even really agree with most of it because at the time I had been, you know, trained in a very, very different style and it almost felt like blasphemy. But it, he's, <laughs> he's such an engaging writer. I mean, obviously right. that um, I and think I mean, it's worth I- reading regardless. Just from personal experience, when I directed, I did a fair. I had a fair amount of actors that were were trained in Atlantic, and I, I found them much easier to kind of get along with as a whole, and much <laughs> much easier to, to give direction to than than some of the others who had you know other forms of training. So I, I'm a big fan of what he teaches yeah. uh, as a as a as a particular style. Well, I mean, it's been a while since I've acted. I don't really yeah. have an informed opinion either way, but I'm just <laughs> saying he's a very good writer and. You know, even if you're he's not, an excellent writer. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And there was the, there was a I, thing on your your uh, that you mentioned, Patrick, about um, his theory about um, how Asperger's, yeah, <laughs> and 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 relates to success in early Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and yeah. that's in Bambi versus Godzilla, and it's definitely worth checking out. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, again, um, thank you for being on. You can find Brendan Leonard at brendanmleonard.com. That's correct. Um, recent, recently wrote a uh, review of License to Pawn, I see. Yeah. Oh. I will also uh, be doing some coverage for Mulholland Books, and uh, you can look for my review of Drive, which will be up hopefully later this week. Excellent. Oh, yeah. We'll definitely be talking about that on the next episode, I'm sure. Very excited Excellent. for that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. It was really no great problem. to have you on the show again, and you'll probably be on again next year, I'm sure. Looking yeah. forward to it. Absolutely. Great. We always love having you on. Um, <laughs> now, if you want to love us... You can. Oh, man, I'm so good at segues. Uh, <laughs> go to directorsclubpodcast.com. Or email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you want to follow me on Twitter? I am at Patrick Rapol. 
and I am at Instant Gym. And Brendan, what's your Twitter? Uh, Twitter.com slash Brendan M. Leonard. There you go. That's yeah. simple enough. And really quickly, I, I just wanted to bring this up because we uh, I was absent-minded and not mentioning this on the last episode, but our guest from the last episode, Eric Childress, you should visit his Twitter at Eric the Movie Man, especially right now because he's covering TIFF, and every time he walks out of a movie... Uh, at, at the Toronto International Film Festival, he's tweeting about it. Yeah. So um, you should you should check that out. Speaking of absent-minded, we forgot to do our top three. We did forget. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so real quick, my top three mammoth movies would be uh, Homicide, uh, House of Games, and Spartan. That is my exact same top three as well. All right. I'm gonna mix it up. I'll go Spartan, House of Games, Red Belt. Awesome. Very good. Awesome. All right. All right. Thanks again, Brendan. We'll talk to you soon. And, uh, Looking forward to it. You thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you uh, in a couple of weeks when we talk about the Wachowski brothers. We'll probably have siblings a... now. That's true. Yeah, the Wachowski siblings, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll we're going to have a good discussion, I'm sure, on Speed Racer. <laughs> by the by, the way, uh, number of uh, number of non-white directors we've covered one. Um, by the end of the year, <laughs> we will have covered four separate. Uh, queer directors so oh yeah good point good point we have a type yeah (laughs) all right right, but until then okay (laughs) go to lunch who'd play (laughs) will you go to lunch (laughs) Uh. Sophia Coppola would be a fun one. I'll put her on the... Ooh! I like her! God damn it, Jim. You really... <laughs> Who... How about whoever directed Seabiscuit? <laughs>